can run from Suspiria. You can hide from Suspiria. Who's there? Who's there? But you cannot escape Suspiria. Once you've seen Suspiria, you will never again feel safe in the dark. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. Welcome back to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Today we have a very special episode. We're going to call this a sidecast. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers presents the sidecast. Uh, for you Saturday Night Movie Sleepover listeners, this is actually part two of a crossover episode. Special crossover episode with the Wrong Real Podcast. Uh, sitting with me today in my mom's basement, where we're getting all cozy for our sleepover, is James Hancock. Hello. He's the uh, mastermind of the Wrong Real Podcast, which I've guested on a few times, so I'm very excited to have James here on our show to talk one of my favorite subjects of all time, Dario Argento. Uh, for our listeners, we did a pretty intense Deep Red episode last summer. We talked about Argento. Surprisingly, pleasantly surprisingly, I should say, it did pretty well. People downloaded it, and hopefully they liked it. Dario Argento is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. He's definitely in the top five uh, behind people like John Carpenter. Well, for uh, you, it's Carpenter, Cronenberg, Keaton, Argento. And Chuck Jones. Gotcha. Excellent. <laughs> I, go com- I go horror and comedy. Screw everybody else. Uh, and uh, this is a very exciting episode. In the first installment of this two- special two-parter, we talked about Dario Argento's first three films, known affectionately by fans as the Animal Trilogy. More of a thematic trilogy because of the titles all having animals in the title, Bird with Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies of Grey Velvet. Uh, not exactly a proper trilogy. I would say kind of in the fashion of the Man with No Name trilogy. And then, of course, Carpenter's apocalyptic trilogy of The Thing, In the Mouth of Madness, and Prince of Darkness. But now we're going to discuss an actual trilogy, the Three Mother trilogy, starting with Suspiria. So, James, tell us one a little bit about the Wrong Real podcast for the people that are listening, that are listeners of our show that maybe haven't checked out your show, which I highly recommend, especially the episodes I'm on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you have recorded or been ap- appeared on some of our most popular episodes of all time. So I thank you so much for coming on Wrong Real so frequently and giving us such great content and such great uh, subjects to discuss. But yeah, Wrong Real, it's a podcast like many podcasts out there about movies, but I feel like the one thing that maybe perhaps separates us from some others is that we do a lot of filmography episodes where I'm a big fan of breadth as opposed to depth. Um, if you want to do a deep dive into a single topic, I'm kind of the last person you want to talk to because after a certain point, I'm like, oh, we're being pretentious or we're going inside our navel and I'm, I lose interest. But I love history. I love broad overviews of filmographies. So when you came on and we talked about Buster Keaton's whole career or George A. Romero's whole career, that's the shit that I really get excited for and I get really fired up for because I, I love looking at someone's filmography as a whole. But we also re-review new movies and we do movie news and that sort of thing. But I listen to a lot of film podcasts, but I basically created Wrong Reel 
because there was a vacuum of what I wanted to hear as a consumer. And now, uh, yeah, you and I just did our 244th episode. We've been doing it about two and a half years, and I absolutely love it because I meet great filmmakers, film commentators, film personalities. And you can check it out on iTunes or Stitcher Radio and give me a shout on Twitter at Colbrax or at WrongReal. But, uh, yeah. Give it a listen. It can get a little foul at times. I mean, if you want to hear about superheroes, you know, eating the inside of someone's butt cheeks, like, you know, you're going to hear about it on Wrong Reel. So it's not necessarily something you want to listen to with your children. But if you want to hear frank, candid conversations, but with a lot of love for film, I regard it as a great caffeine-fueled rampage through the best of film histories. Yeah, I, I I love it. I love doing it with you uh, when I am have the honor of being able to uh, come over and talk about it uh, i like it because it's very different than the show that dion and i do we kind of dive deep head first into one movie every episode i always say uh we talk at length or some might say at nauseum about one <laughs> movie for two plus hours uh so it's fun to get to do your show where we kind of you don't dive as deep into one movie but we get to cover a lot more ground no, it's like the sprinting through the louvre and band of outsiders it's that's kind of our approach to film it's like all right let's run through a hundred years of movies in 10 minutes and then yeah, move on and yeah like the romero episode is pretty epic and that's the one uh, the one thing i will say that's a little difficult about doing a show like that when i do your show is there's a, just a lot of ground to cover yeah. in, in preparation <laughs> Like even to do these, uh, you know, to talk about the six, the these six Argento movies, three of them on on your show, uh, three of them here. I was getting up early every day before work and watching an Argento movie. <laughs> well, for me, sometimes I'll I, it'll totally bite me on the ass because I'll accidentally plan in one week too many of those kind of like if yeah, it's yeah. like you know a new release followed by a filmography episode followed by a new release, then it's pretty doable. But I'm like, oh my god, I've got like four episodes this week with like. 50 movies that I need to see. I was like, there's mathematically, it's impossible to study all this crap. So then I just have to pick, pick and choose. So I try to be, you know, sometimes it does, if someone becomes available, I have no choice. Like, oh, you want to do the entire history of Superman and film and television? Let's do it. And you want to do it tomorrow? Shit, that's not a lot of time to prepare, but let's, let's go. <laughs> Hopefully, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. I can't prepare for it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, doing, I don't remember how many Romero movies we did, but we basically Ton. did almost his entire catalog yeah. minus. I mean, we touched on the zombie movies, but we kind of... We wanted to shine a light on the lesser known. Yeah, so. it was a lot of movies, and we kind of refined it a little bit when we did the Keaton stuff, where I picked a bunch of shorts, um, and you picked a couple of features. And so it was less material to cover, but it was still pretty uh, intense. And like I said, at, at the beginning of the week, I was like, okay, I, I, was, I was like watching an Argento movie in the morning, maybe coming home and starting an Argento movie at night. But I got in this thing where I was like, I, I have the benefit right now if I, I'm working a very short distance away from my house at, at the moment. So uh, I work freelance, so I don't always work at the same place. Right now I'm working at like a 10-minute walk. So getting up early to watch it is was less painful than it would be as if I was working far away. But Also, and something tells me that these movies, like the end of Four Flies in Grey Velvet, are burned onto your <laughs> retina. So you probably didn't require too much preparation I, yes. or revisiting I was very tempted to skip Suspiria just because I've seen it eight million times but I went through and I watched it anyway because I got into it I, I, well, the other thing I like about doing the shows like this one and the ones we do on your, on your show is what, seeing them kind of in order watching them in order and seeing like this progression of an artist I find very fascinating so I didn't want to skip Suspiria uh, I wanted to watch it because I wanted to see it 
bought it up right against Inferno. You know, seeing, watching Suspiria one day, watching Inferno the next day. It's also such a great pivot point in his career because everything up through Profondo Rosso has a very different style and aesthetic. And with Suspiria, it's like, boink, kind of new direction for the career moving forward. Uh, But I did get it early in the week. I was like, you know what? This is kind of cool. Maybe I'm going to do this forever. Maybe I'll watch a movie a day. I'll get up early. I'll watch a movie and then I'll get ready and I'll go to work. By the end of the week, I'm like, oh, man. I don't know if I can do if I can keep this up. Well, what's that line that Truffaut used to always say? Like, like his idea of, and I'm paraphrasing, but his idea of heaven essentially was to uh, see two movies a day, read a book a day, and discover a few new albums per week. But basically, his idea of like bliss in heaven was just having new albums, new books, and new movies coming into his life on a steady, routine basis. And yeah, there's, you know, that is a life. So in. Uh this special crossover episode of wrong real versus <laughs> Saturday night movie sleepovers or meets team up. It's a team up. It's a team up. It's a crossover. It's a company wide crossover. <laughs> uh, in, in the first installment, we talked about the uh, animal trilogy, which are all Giallo movies. And we took a little bit of a deep dive into the history of Giallo. And uh, for those of you that are listeners, like I said, we did a deep red episode uh, so you might want to maybe check out Wrong Real first. If not, you know, that's okay too. I think you can check it out second if can... that's how you like to roll. <laughs> you can be uh, adventurous. You can be a, a little bit of a rebel and check it out second and go out of order. Uh, but if you listen to those two episodes, don't forget we have a deep breath episode that you can either revisit or listen to it the first time. Um, if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. So uh, chronologically, his Argento's first three films – are the Animal Trilogy. Uh, based on the success of those, we discussed there was a slew of copycat Giallo movies that had Animal in the title. Now, I think that's partially uh, why Argento might have said after Four Flies on Grey Velvet that, like, I'm not going to do Giallo movies anymore. I've done three. I've kind of reinvented this genre. Uh, I don't want to compete with all these copycats. I'm going to venture off and do something else. So he decided to do Five Days in Milan which was a financial failure. And then he said, hey, those Jalo movies aren't looking so bad now, are they? <laughs> but then arguably he came back with maybe the best one of them all. Yeah. I mean, uh, Deep Red is a masterpiece. So he comes back with Deep Red, um, and uh, he discovers the band Goblin in the process. He meets Dario Nicolodi. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention when we were doing Four Flies on Grey Velvet on Wrong Reel Something I find interesting is this, like this weird relationship with a, a husband and wife, and she's very manipulative, and she ultimately, spoiler alert, uh, ends up being the killer, trying to torture her husband. Argento was going through the divorce with his first wife while he made that movie, and I wonder if it has anything. Find Cronenberg and the Brood. <laughs> the yeah, brood. Who's going, he was going through a nasty uh, divorce, and it's all in that script. Or uh, possession. The director that made Pizzo. Zulowski, yeah, Andrzej Zulowski. He was going through a divorce when he wrote that movie. Um, if you're going through personal trauma, use it. I mean, if you're an artist <laughs> and you're experiencing personal tragedy, you might as well, at the very least, incorporate it into your art. So that so he ends up starting to see Dario Nicolodi. And Dario Nicolodi is one of these, he's basically the female lead of Profondo Rosso. Uh, and, the mother of Asia. And they have a child, Asia Argento, who ends up becoming Argento's muse and his kind of uh, female protagonist in many of his future movies. Now, is that uh, relationship is kind of extremely, it probably the most important thing to the Mother Trilogy, the Three Mother Trilogy, because it is, without Daria Nicolodi, 
Suspiria wouldn't have happened. Uh, she, to this day, it's my understanding, she even thinks she believes that she's a white witch and that she has powers and that she comes from a long line of witches, uh, white witches. And so she's very uh, a believer. Of and that's white in terms of like. A, a certain type of power as opposed to race. Like, as yes, as a, yes, yes. As opposed to like, as it's opposed- like black magic versus white magic <laughs> yes, as opposed yes. to like black people and white people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm a white witch, motherfucker. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, and the story originates from a story that she used to be told when she was a little girl by her grandmother, who was a pianist. And as a pianist, her grandmother went to a popular music academy or i guess an art academy that uh you know they studied all kinds of things one of them was uh music and dario nicolodi won't mention the name of the school because it's still around and she's afraid to and while at according to her grandmother while studying piano at this academy she discovered that this academy was also teaching black magic and the dark arts which frightened her so much that she ran away and never went back. She would tell Dario Nicolodi the story, and that's where the idea from Suspiria is kind of born. Suspiria being Carpenter's, not Carpenter, got Carpenter on the brain because we just did Cody Carpenter on Movie Lovers last week. But to be fair, Carpenter does love Suspiria. <laughs> Carpenter does love Suspiria, talks about it at, I wouldn't say at length, but at least a little bit in my book, Scored to Death. Uh, is especially the music. In that documentary about um, Dario Gento, he also talks at length just about the opening couple of minutes of Suspiria and just how eerie and weird it is with like the music and the rain and how instantly you're just you're completely on edge, on, on your heels, like what's happening, where are we going? So yeah, he speaks very eloquently about why so many of the sequences work so well. Yeah, that's a great documentary. I think it's called An Eye for Horror. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, which I think was produced or directed uh, by Alan Jones, who is a guy that I did an interview with several years ago, which I reprinted uh, last summer on the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers Is it Mark Kermode involved as well as, as he a very, narrator? He very, well, yeah. he very well could be. Uh, this seems like there's a lot of people involved, but right. definitely Alan they Jones. They rounded up all the aficionados. <laughs> uh, so that's one of my favorite film documentaries because of my fascination with – uh, Argento and I love Asia's interviews in that um, because they're so revealing. There's always like I don't know what my what my my grandmother did to him <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> as a kid, but it must yeah. have been something. Yeah, she's, she's very frank because he's she's, she's very open. He's deathly afraid of her. Um, uh, other uh, inspirations for Suspiria are the Waldorf School in Stuttgart, Germany founded by Rudolf Steiner. Now, this was a school that I think has kind of affiliates all over the world still, and it's a very popular uh, brand of education. But there was a time when it was kind of brought under uh, accusations of people saying you're you're pushing paganism and and, and sometimes even uh, Satanism. Uh, so it was this idea of a school maybe trying to corrupt young minds with uh, religious beliefs that were not of the popular... <laughs> Sounds like a fun place to go. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, there's a book called Suspiria de Profundas by Thomas de Quincey. Uh, in it, there's a thing called the Lavana and Our Ladies of Sorrow. And this is kind of where the inspiration of the three mothers kind of comes from. In, this, in the book, they talk about the, the three uh, ladies of fate and three ladies of grace. And so uh, Argento kind of creates this. Well, what if there's also three ladies of sorrow being... Um, Mater Suspiriarum, the Lady of Size, Our Lady of Size, uh, 
Lacrimarum, or Lady of Tears, which is, of course, the Mother of Tears, and uh, Ten- Tenebrarum, which is Darkness. Now, it gets confusing as an Argento fan because, like, the movie he did after this was Ten- Tenebrae, <laughs> uh, which obviously is where that kind of that phrase comes from, but that has nothing to do with the Three Mothers trilogy. I would say most people especially American audiences, Suspiria is probably the first film they saw of the Argento catalog. It was for me, yeah. I didn't. Uh, I saw it later after a few of the ones that people don't like so much. But uh, I'd love to hear about seeing Suspiria for the first time. It was either summer 97 or summer 98, and I'd taken a, I was doing summer internships in Los Angeles while I was an undergrad, and I was traveling out there, and I quickly discovered the American Cinematheque, which at the time was at Raleigh Studios, and Raleigh Studios was the temporary home while the Egyptian was being restored. And the Egyptian now is like, it's one of those old movie palaces from the 20s, and it's a great revival house place for retrospectives today. But I remember uh, I'd heard of Suspiria, vaguely, but knew almost nothing. So I went in there with blank slate. I just knew that Argento had an important big name in horror. And I sat down there. I might have been under the influence of some herbal jazz cigarettes, and I, this movie begins... And I can intend, I can remember specifically the first 10 or 15 minutes up through the first murder being – I'd never felt emotions like this while watching a horror movie because I'd never seen a horror movie that looked or sounded like this before. And I remember just something about these giant rooms and that girl screaming for help and the girl's about to come through the glass. I, it's, it's, it was like a nightmare that I didn't want to wake up from. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. But as I was explaining in the previous episode, for whatever reason, and for reasons I cannot even begin to explain, in spite of having this jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring experience with Suspiria, I had nothing prompted me to continue further down the road to see his other films. And it took me 20 years to circle back, and I finally started watching his movies because I wanted to do a, uh, a written post where I covered all of his movies. And so I basically I watched, I think, every single movie he'd ever made except for like one or two of them, including that historical epic you mentioned uh, earlier, which I don't, I don't think I'll ever watch that one. So yeah, most of my love of Dario Gento's work comes from like age 39 and 40. So I don't have a huge nostalgia for his work. I've got a tremendous awe and admiration for his work because for me I, I like filmmakers who shock us out of complacency I like filmmakers who don't let you feel safe I like filmmakers who will arouse you and make you feel gross and guilty about it after the fact but then you come back for seconds because you want that emotion again and so there's very very few filmmakers who are able to do that and in terms of like overt visual stylizations like just color combined with crazy camera angles com- combined with beautiful music he kind of stands alone in uh, a lot of respects. And Suspiria, I feel like nowhere is that more on display than in this movie. Yeah, Suspiria for me, it wasn't the first Argento film I saw. I think that might have been Two Evil Eyes or, or an American cut of the film Opera. And then eventually it came out on VHS around that time. This was, I'm talking late 90s. There was kind of this big resurgence for horror in terms of distribution with uh, VHS video. Places like Anchor Bay Entertainment were doing beautiful restorations, widescreen, as beautiful as they could be on VHS, really, <laughs> and releasing them. And then uh, other companies were getting on the bandwagon kind of doing this. It was just before DVD kind of hit. And I, I, I was in film school and I was falling in love with all kinds of things. I think the horror thing was a little bit of a rebellious thing. Uh, in addition, I mean, I was already in love. Were with you a horror that. junkie from a young, as a young child as well? Uh, I would not. No, I would not say that. I, I mean, there was always uh, horror was always a presence in viewing. I mean, uh, when we were growing up, uh, 
you had things like Tales from the Dark Side. And there was a lot of it on television. Friday the 13th, the series, Tales from the Crypt, all kinds of stuff. Freddy's Nightmares, which we talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago when we did Dream Warriors. On the, We're on the, the Dream Warriors! <laughs> Such a great tune. Uh, it docking? Was, the, or, docking, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was also, uh, it was the video store generation that we were growing up in. And because of repeat viewing and, and VHS... Uh, distribution and consumption in the 80s uh, guys like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees were becoming like cinematic rock stars they were rock stars like they stopped being scary and as a kid I didn't mind that they weren't scary anymore but it is weird how they went from being terrifying villains to as popular as any celebrity you can think of and like it totally destroyed the horror yeah, of yeah. the horror movies yeah. but when I went and saw Dream Warriors in the theater as a little kid I remember when the first time when Freddy slides into frame when he's chasing um i think it's a patricia arquette she's having a dream i remember a buddy of mine and i simultaneously both went yeah and like pumped our fists i was like why are we saying yeah when the bad guy shows up but but that's what freddie had become yeah he'd become the hero yeah Uh, it was a weird thing i mean i remember even like sixth grade uh, you know you have your elementary school halloween parade around the school or something and there was many freddies uh, you know, at a young age. So it was a very bizarre time because you have this child killer. Uh, yeah, he's a child murderer. <laughs> suggestive. Idolized molester. by millions of young children. <laughs> Dolls and stuff. And I had a little sister who was just a toddler at a time who didn't come in. I didn't even notice at the time. She didn't come into my room for like five or six years because I had all these Freddy posters. And she re- regarded my room as this chamber of horrors, <laughs> never to be entered under any circumstances. Yeah. And she didn't tell me about this until we were adults. She was like, oh, yeah, when I was a kid. I, I basically stayed as far away from your room as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Freddie was when I, uh, In the movie Lovers episode that I did with Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show, I told him, I recited a story where I had an older cousin who was very in heavy metal. And but it was like the opposite for me. Like I wanted, like I had to see it. I was like he, and he was in a, he was a teenager at the time, and he even put like a deadbolt on his. <laughs> his he was pure metal. <laughs> like that room, something <laughs> cool's happening in there. But every once in a while, you'd be able to sneak in there, and he had all these posters of like Ozzy with blood coming in his mouth. Ozzy as the as a werewolf. Why from is all the this stuff? It's and it was it was this weird fascination. So horror was kind of always around, but I started to really get into it when I was in high school, where my friends and I during Saturday night movie sleepovers, literally we would rent horror movies or sometimes Friday nights. Uh, we be- Writing horror movies became a, a regular thing for us. It's um, a ritual. And still some of my favorite viewings. I remember there was one of the worst storms, like rain, thunder, lightning storms that I can remember uh, occurred one summer. And uh, me, my buddy Pete and his older brother, Gary, and their next door neighbor, Smitty, Pete's parents were away, so we, his older brother rented The Shining, and we went and we opened the blinds to all the windows, turned out all the lights, and we watched The Shining, and it was just like the light would be illuminated by lightning. As that's we, killer. <laughs> we were watching it. Uh, so some of my favorite things, and that's how I discovered and fell in love with John Carpenter, which I've talked about a lot on our show. Um, and then when I got into college, I kind of loved John Carpenter. I was I was very into horror, and then... Meeting guys like Dion and uh, guys that you guessed on your show, the Pink Smoke guys, Chris Funderburg and John Cribbs, you start talking about what the things you're into. You introduce each other to new things. Dion was very into the Romero zombie movies. Uh, Cribbs and John Cribbs and Chris Funderburg have very eclectic tastes and uh, discovering all kinds of new things. I started to fall in love with horror, uh, 
hardcore, really. Uh, plus, as we were talking about, the distribution was becoming a thing. The internet was becoming a thing. And, and so you could start to find things on, on eBay. And uh, there were forums that you could talk to other people about. And yeah, it was no longer about just going to the video store and talking to the clerk who knows a lot about movies. You actually have this wealth of information suddenly at yeah. your fingertips beyond like you know picking up books. I would buy books that were like, you know, like top 10 horror movies you need to see before you die or top yeah, 10 yeah. horror filmmakers. But. The internet was just a total game changer. Yeah. And then uh, with the distri- distribution, I started to fall in love with horror movies, everything from, uh, you know, Martin, which we talked about on an episode of your podcast, uh, things like God Told Me To by Larry Cohen, uh, Maniac, Cronenberg, my, my love for Cronenberg started there. But it was also around this time that, our, that Suspiria started popping up on lists. Of like the hundred greatest horror movies of all time, Suspiria ended up becoming staple on these lists that were in magazines like Maxim Magazine. <laughs> for a lot of people, top five or top ten or yeah. top one. I mean, it pops so up. Uh, it was all kind of starting. You know, when when I, I a couple weeks ago I guessed it on the Hellbent for Horror podcast to talk about the book and uh, S.A. Bradley, who's the host, said, "I said, well, is there anything that I should prepare? I'm like, are we just going to talk about the book?" He said, "Start thinking of like movies that maybe." Uh, people that are new to horror might want to check out that they might not know. But I was very like, riddled with, you know, stress over this. Because <laughs> I was like, when I started... What an awesome burden and responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but there was also this notion of like, when I discovered these movies, they were rare and nobody, you know, not a lot of people knew what they what they were. But now it's just a matter of choice. Do I want to watch it or not? Yeah, like I don't know what other people don't know now. But at the time when I got into Argento, it was, he was pretty rare for America. Um, I talk about how Suspiria, at least in America, is is by far his most popular film. And I think that has to do largely with this idea of it being put on lists and stuff. But I think and world... People probably know Creepers, even though they don't know it's Argento, like, which is also known as Phenomena. But just because yeah. in the 80s, that box cover was pretty iconic of like Jennifer Connelly with like the half-riding face and the yeah, bugs yeah. and like... So I, that was on my radar. I just didn't know it was Argento sure. until way later. Uh, uh, but worldwide, and especially in Italy, Deep Red is, is I think, his big success. Um, and rightfully so. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Suspiria, for instance, would, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to kind of dive more into it now. Um, it's an interesting film because it's a film that I had seen so many times that I felt like I, until this viewing, I was taking it for granted almost. You almost kind of ruined it for yourself? It was like, uh, you know, like I said, I almost didn't even watch it to kind of prepare for this. I don't know if I said this on our show or on your show. <laughs> but uh, you can sap these crucial movies of their power. If you really love a movie, it's at, you can accidentally spoil it for yourself by overindulging. you gotta, yeah, yeah. you got to let it breathe and come back to it. Well, it's definitely while. not my favorite Argento movie. And maybe it was when I saw it because I didn't have the other movies to compare it to. Uh, but it is, you know, despite how many times I've seen it, despite it maybe not being my favorite, uh, seeing it this time around, as we, as I always do with Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, when I rewatch a movie, I try to, I do my best to watch it with fresh eyes. And... It was a complete joy to watch it this time, and to really revel in its artistry and the and the and the mastery of of Dario Argento as a as a as a real artist. in in the In the previous episode, the part one of this epic team up uh, podcast, we talk about his visual style and how he kind of right out of the gate had a very definite uh, realized visual style, and he. You know, he cranks this baby up to 11 with Suspiria. You know, I was just, was just talking about 
how he decided he wasn't going to do any Giallo movies. So he did Five Days in Milan. That failed. He came back to uh, Deep Red. Again, he's like, I did Deep Red. I did it again. Not only did I kind of reinvent the genre and make it popular again like five years ago, with the amount of copycats and stuff, the Giallo was kind of, again, dead Played in the out. water. And then he comes back just a few, you know, with Deep Red. Once again, knocks out of the park. Maybe my favorite Argento movie is Deep Red. It's just, and it's a one... A one, that would be the one I showed to people first before any of his other movies. Like, yeah. if you want to, who is Dario Argento? I feel like that's the one that's going to have the best possible chance of making him a fan for life if that's their yeah, first yeah. experience. Yeah. When people say, like, well, what if I was going to check out a Dario Argento movie, what should I check out? I say, check out Deep Red. If you like Deep Red, watch Suspiria. Um, I said, if you watch those two movies and you don't like them, then there's no sense in yeah. <laughs> abort and adventuring yeah. any further because you either get it or you don't. Um, so, but after Deep Red, he's like, okay, I want to do something different. I've already kind of explored the uh, Jalo thing uh, way way too much. Uh, I want to do something full fledged horror. He 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 dabbles with it a little bit in Deep Red. We have a psychic, so we, he starts to get into like the supernatural a little bit. Yeah, and for me, that's when Giallo stops being Giallo and becomes supernatural horror. When as soon as you involve powers, yeah, or the supernatural or, or, or spirits or demons or witches, for me, that's it's it's an arbitrary distinction. But for me, that's when it stops being Giallo. For me, Giallo has to be totally sure. rooted in the real world. And as soon as someone has like otherworldly gifts, like oh, now we've we've crossed over into <laughs> a different a different subgenre. Sure, yeah. but Suspiria still follows a lot of kind of the tropes that Argento works with. Be uh, in. Uh, birth crystal plumage and also in deep red we have this idea of a witness of something and not sure what yeah yeah and and they're not exactly sure what it was that they witnessed and then it's that memory that kind of plagues them and maybe drives the story a little bit that happens with our main character here uh susie banyan she witnesses someone leaving the school as she's approaching in the dead of night during a storm and she sees them yelling to somebody off screen and then they run out and hauling ass through the woods (laughs) (laughs) um so in a sense, it is a giallo, but now this is we get into complicated territory because we have giallo as being uh, maybe a subgenre of the thriller or horror genre. Now, Spiri becomes what's called a giallo fantastica, ah, very which nice. is a giallo movie that involves the fantastic or, or the super, supernatural. Uh, Spiri comes out in 1977. Uh, we talked a little bit about its kind of influences. Dario Nicolodi, co-written with Dario Nickelodeon. Even she admits that she didn't know until even it wasn't until she saw it that she knew she was going to get credit <laughs> for helping write the movie. Because Dario, uh, like so many auteurs, do not like to share credit when they don't have to. Um, the story is essentially uh, an American dancer, a ballet dancer, travels to Freiburg. Germany to attend this prestigious dance school. Played by the great Jessica Harper, who I'm obsessed with. Jessica Harper, had she had been in Phantom of Paradise, which yeah. is where Dario Argento saw her first. And uh, originally... I started working with Woody Allen later on, like Star, Stardust Memories. I mean, yeah, she worked with Woody Allen, Dario Argento, and Brian De Palma all in the span of like four or five years. <laughs> like, she was on fire. And she's in... Uh, my favorite year with Peter O'Toole. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent correct. Yeah, the, the 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 one that's loosely based on Mel Brooks's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, which is a which is a great fun movie starring um, obviously her Peter O'Toole and Marklin Baker from Perfect Strangers yep. fame. Uh, Cousin Larry for everybody else out there that doesn't know the name Marklin Baker. Uh, 
Now, originally, Dario Nicolodi was going to star in it, either in the role of Susie Banyan, played by Jessica Harper, or as Sarah, kind of her friend at the school, played by uh, Stefania Cassini. But something happened, which I'm not sure what, but uh, Daria had a an injury and wasn't able to actually participate in the filming of the movie. So they've cast those parts. Suspiria, best known for style. I mean, you kind of hinted at it when you were talking Color, about yeah. seeing it for the first time. Um, it really is a visceral assault, possibly more than any other Argento movie. Uh, the primary colors, the set design, the music, if you can even call it that most of the time, by got by the band Goblin, it's just, it attacks your senses in a way that very few, if any, movies do. If you're listening to this podcast and you have not seen Suspiria yet... Uh, you're in for a treat. <laughs> yeah. you, it, just be ready... Uh, just be ready for it. Uh, well, I don't think anyone's ever created a labyrinth of horror the way this movie has. I mean, like, it, you, you get the sense of, like, it's hard to know what the geography is, but these rooms yeah. and chambers seem to go on to infinity, and each room is more horrifying than the, than the previous one, whether it's a room full of barbed wire or just some giant chamber that you're going to fall through or crazy windows that evil eyes. I mean, like every, it's just, there seems to be no limit to his imagination in terms of how each room can be so completely visually distinctive from the previous one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's I mean, it's a crazy movie on all fronts. Um, you talked about how in that documentary, An Eye for Horror, John Carpenter was talking about the opening. It is possibly the first, like, 12 to 15 minutes of this movie are arguably the best, one of the best openings to a movie ever. 100%. In the Wrong Wheel episode, we talk about the idea of planes and, and travel, why that's such a big thing in... in uh, Italian giallo movies, so go listen to that for that explanation. But we open in this uh, weird airport that is lit for Suspiria. It's red. <laughs> she walks out of the baggage claim. It's like it looks like she's coming out of like a brothel. It's like why is the entire baggage claim area dark red? <laughs> and uh, she walks through uh, 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 automatic doors into a rainstorm. Uh, automatic doors never seem so ominous. Um, you have this powerful score by Goblin. Uh, for uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepover listeners, you can hear all about their kind of Goblin uh, starting with Argento as a Is that a xylophone that plays like the main melody? Or what is the instrument being used for that? Yeah, it's a... Uh... You know, I, I, I don't know. It's it sounds it's definitely, like in that family of sure. instruments. Yeah, it's... Uh, maybe I mean, a, mar- a marangaphone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a keyboard that he's using. Uh, but, but what kind of... Uh, a synthesizer, but what kind of effects he has on there, I don't know. Uh, Beautiful score. There's definitely some kind of... A little bit of a reverb echo thing, because it kind of doubles itself as it's happening. Uh, there's... I mean, when you think of... Everybody talks about the, the Goblin score. And, of course how great it is. And it's considered one of the great scores of all time, not just even great horror scores. Just great score. Yeah. Um, but I think most people think of it. They think of that theme. I mean, that's very, there's small. so much more like the bedding bow that gets whipped out every period. I mean, that's like a crazy African instrument that they use in Capoeira, yeah. which is basically a curved stick with a string with a rock. And it has only two notes, but you, you can hear that being used a ton. Whenever there's like a scene involving danger or death, the bedding bow comes in. Yeah, yeah. It's a very savage kind of like primal sound. And they use a lot of the uh, of the bazooki, which is kind of a cross between a mandolin and a guitar. And uh, talking to 
uh, Claudio Simonetti and uh, Maurizio Guarini from my book, Scored to Death. Pick it up. Uh, Plug time, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that choice was because uh, Helena Marcos, the the witch, the, the evil force in this movie is a witch. Um, she's supposed to be Greek, the Marcos. So they wanted to use a Greek instrument. Well, also there's some cool voices in the score as well. It's almost like these kind of like whisper slash yells of a bunch of voices in unison that are incredibly ominous and terrifying as well. You almost get the sense that the characters can hear the score of the film, which is supposed to be just for us. But like everyone's like, can they hear these whispers? Are they being like led through these corridors by this eerie eerie and ominous score and you never quite know if they can yeah. hear it or not it, it's it, aside well there's of course the witch i mean there's there's there are the voices in that main theme but then all the other music in this movie is like abstract avant-garde very percussive it's almost like sound design more than music and it really does put you on edge and there's a lot of voices there's like howling voices screaming voices and it's a very interesting tool the idea of the voice here which is a is kind of a, a great notion of horror in general. You take the Jaws theme, for instance. The this was a way for John Williams and Steven Spielberg to say, like, even though we're not going to show you the shark, he's around. This song is going to let you know that it's here. Yeah, uh, you have the from Friday the Thirteenth. It's a way for that was a way for Harry Manfredini to say, like, we're not actually going to see Jason until the, you know. The killer <laughs> until like the last reel of this movie. So uh, I need we need a device to make that killer present throughout the movie. So that's the same things happening here with Suspiria. Those voices, the witch, and all those crazy howling voices and everything are telling us, or not even telling us, but like subliminally com- uh, communicating to the audience that that this and the characters in some cases <laughs> <laughs> yeah that this this presence is it's omnipresent it's always there and even though we're not really going to get to much of the witchcraft stuff until the la- the end of this like movie the last 5 minutes <laughs> <laughs> like it really does put you on edge yeah. uh, argento is kind of a master of that we talked about it in the deep red cast this idea of like the fighting dogs and the lizard being killed it happens in uh, the the animal trilogy. I'm trying to think if it's maybe uh, four flies. We see like the uh, maybe it's actually Inferno. The the idea of like the lizard eating the moth. Ar- yep. Argento will put in these things just to keep you kind of uh, uh, off kilter as an audi- as an audience. Like member. the dog that inexplicably just tears <laughs> the head off its owner. Look for me. I was like, oh, that's because the dog's being like possessed or influenced by these spirits or witches or whatever but there's no real concrete evidence no. as to why the dog suddenly does this but it, it it happens so no well you know you get a sense of that i guess well here's the Fulci you know, did it in the beyond as well it seems like this <laughs> is kind of an italian thing where your dogs at any given time might turn on you and just rip your fucking head off well you know you can't explore an argento movie especially the three mothers trilogy uh with, with a fine comb in time, in terms of uh, well, like, emotionally it makes perfect sense, yeah. but in terms of quote unquote plausibility, who the hell knows what's going on? Yeah, I think you know maybe he's leaving after having a fight. Uh, uh, the supposedly the dog bit the little boy, and he's like, "Oh, I'm leaving." And he's like, "Fuck this shit!" You know, <laughs> I don't need this. My dog wouldn't hurt anybody. You must have done something to it. So I think it's uh, the dog is uh, being used as a tool 
to yeah because they, they talk revenge. about that, how the witches they basically have a lot of gifts and traits for for self-gain and self-promotion often at the expense of somebody else and it seems like it's one of their little spells or tricks yeah. that they use whether it's to make someone sick or to make but well, basically they're just they put they put they put the boo hag on him. They put the, they, he got zapped somehow. I mean, but again with like logistics, like the whole opening of this movie. You know, we said we have this girl passes Susie Banyan, Jessica Harper's character, as she's trying to get into the school. She runs through the woods. She ends up running to a friend's house uh, to dry off in the bathroom, which. And this girl lives in the craziest house ever invented. <laughs> which I almost feel like it's like a like a like a wing of the school. Yeah, it seems, yeah. But it's like it's the wildest building in the history of horror movies. And then there's like just this crazy scene that ends up in her murder. But there's like these hairy arms and, and eyes. And I was like, "What is that? Like yeah. who? Like it's never explained. <laughs> it's never explained. That that character, quote unquote, doesn't come back." It's just this. And force. what's funny is that until you just mentioned it now, it never even occurred to me to doubt yeah. or second guess who that might be. Yeah. Just these who weird hairy arms that we never see again. What is it? Who is it? Yeah. But one of the great death scenes. Oh, the face against the glass and it's like being squished and then it finally goes through me. Yeah, it's incredible. And then she's being almost teased, stabbed. He's just like hitting her like as she's trying to walk away, keeps like stabbing her. And then we get the close up of like he stabbed her so many times in one spot that her heart is exposed. And yeah, then... and you see the it go right in. For whatever the heart's just totally open to the open air now. And he just kind of gently puts it in there like, oh, this goes here. Yeah. And then, of course, like the finale of falling through the. So if you're a big monster with claws or fingers, why do you even need a fucking knife? Like you're a big hairy monster. Yeah, you can't question it. Yeah. It's just. <laughs> crazy uh she falls through the, the plate glass uh the stained glass ceiling with like a and then as her friends her neck, trying yeah. to run away from like in the lobby she gets the brunt of the of the glass yeah all the glass chops her up but it's 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 as cool a sequence as you can think of in the entire history of the horror genre it's the scene where when i first saw it just completely floored me because I'd never seen anything like it. And I still have never seen anything like no. it. It stands alone. It's it's crazy. It's intense. It's beautiful. It's horrifying. It's, it's illogical. <laughs> it's like you leave your central character behind. Like your central character is gone and she's looking for basically for a place to stay for the night because they won't let her into school. Yeah. And it's like, all right, we're going to forget the central character for him. We're going to follow this other character for a while. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't follow the traditional rules of normal storytelling. Oh, I guess like, you know, kind of just... Yeah, I guess conventional storytelling. And it's not often that a movie, especially in the horror genre, I feel like can live the rest of the movie can sustain itself after an opening like that. I remember years, many, many years ago, 20 years ago, almost uh, renting, having an all night, literally an all nighter back from college. It wasn't really even a sleepover, just like my friend Dave, who gets mentioned. You don't have sleepovers in college. You're just like two guys getting fucked up. It was like a summer. I remember we we played like mini golf. When do you stop having sleepovers? What age? (laughs) It's no longer a sleepover. And someone's just crashing at your place. Because you stop having sleepovers. Sleepovers, and you call and say, hey, you want to come over and play? Or do you want to come over and have a sleepover? Yeah, yeah. But then at a certain point, you just happen to be there, and it's like four of them where they do, do you mind if I crash here on your couch? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can crash there. But the Dave ended up come over, coming over. We watched Phantasm, and I had rented Wishmaster. Oh, gotcha! And we watched the beginning of Wishmaster, and the first like five, ten minutes of the movie is really intense. And I literally stopped it. I was like, "We should just turn this off because it's not gonna, 
It's not going to get it. It's like when a stranger calls. When a stranger calls, same thing. Has like the best opening scene of any horror movie ever and then just completely, utterly falls to pieces. Like, you know, it's like we're never going to get as good as this in the rest of this movie. We ended up finishing watching it. And then many years later, within the last couple of years, I went to Dave's house and we actually did like a Wishmaster marathon. We did like all three or four of them. Just kind of. In nostalgia, in a nostalgic attempt to relive that experience of seeing it the first time. So my point is, Spiria having such a strong opening, there, it's very easy for the rest of this movie to fall apart. Um, and arguably, maybe it never stayed together in the first place. But for like have viewer interest and sustain a viewer, uh, the viewer, it it very well could have fallen off. Uh, but this movie manages to be shockingly beautiful shockingly violent it has so many more scenes that are so eerily beautiful like the scene where they're all sleeping in kind of like the giant workout room they basically like you know they find maggots in the ceiling from this rotten meat and the maggots are falling on all the girls while they're combing their hair and you know don't, just, don't ask yeah it's <laughs> a fucking disgusting scene but they're all sleeping in this giant room together and they set up these like almost like hospital curtains in this of course yet another red light but seeing the two girls in bed listening to the snoring of the the mistress, uh, the headmistress, yeah. or whatever. For me, for whatever reason, it's one of the most terrifying, eerie sequences in the entire movie. Just these two girls listening, trying to figure out what this noise is and who that person is, yeah. and trying to identify it. Because they, they they're under the impression that all the teachers and all the faculty go home at nine thirty. Yet there's this mysterious figure sleeping nearby. Yeah, it's, which doesn't make any sense why that person would be sleeping nearby. Because, but you know, you think to be off in like some her like, silhouette behind yeah, them. You think she'd be off in some like, like cloistered chamber of some kind, but she, for whatever reason, like her presence is there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the funny enough, you know, all the visual stuff going on with the the set design, which we'll talk about uh, briefly before we move on to the next movie. Um, but all the crazy colors, probably the most difficult film. A scene for them to shoot was probably that dog scene that you were referring to where uh, the, 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 open, the yeah. blind man is has his CNI dog and he's walking through the square and and uh, I'm assuming Germany but I think this is actually where like Hitler would congregate and he would give his big speeches and surrounded by like this faux uh, Greek architecture which is kind of fitting given the uh, Helena Marcos uh, like a Greek witch kind of scenario uh, it took them like a week to light that scene because it really is just in the complete wide open yeah you have no control over your environment like the rest of this movie you've got complete total utter control over all the production design yeah, so you can like light in it a studio yeah so they can do whatever they want but here they're shooting outdoors at night in this wide open space and extreme long shots so you can't even get a light in the you can't have a light in the frame so yeah. you have to figure out how to light the scene you know, the size of a, bull, a football field. Yeah. And they don't shoot it day for night. It's like proper night, isn't it? Yeah. It is crazy. And then, you know, they put the camera on this crazy zip line as it's supposed to be like this. You hear like bat fluttering. It's supposed to be like this thing coming to get down to get him before the, the dog strikes. Oddly enough, it's like the least. I think what people would pass off as being like the least interesting thing to look at, but it was probably the most difficult thing they did in the entire movie was lighting that scene. Um, I don't know, the animatronic bat later on for me might be the least interesting thing in the movie. <laughs> that's like the one moment you're like, all right, y'all didn't try that hard with that, that particular effect. But that's all right. We'll just roll with it. We're moving on. <laughs> so 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 not impressive that I forgot all about it, yeah. and even though I just watched the movie, and I've seen it a million times. The bat just slips by me. Uh, it's literally, uh, not literally, obviously, but it is. this movie is a nightmare. I've often said that, to me, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably the most realistic depiction of a nightmare in a movie. The, the poor Sally 
no matter how hard she tries to run, she always ends back up in like the lair. And that's such like a nice <laughs> thing that would happen in a nightmare. Like, like you keep running and you end up at the same place. And then the scene where she's tied up in the armchair, the, yeah. the literal armchair. The, yeah, the close-ups of her eyeballs kind of... But, ju- then, yeah. but then we see that shot of them, like, mocking her, crying, like, ooh, ooh, that's, like, such a night, like, literal nightmare kind of thing, like, being mocked. Um, but this movie, uh, take away the colors and everything, because I think it's easy to, to uh, you know, look at surrealism and say, oh, it's like a dream. Um, my dreams aren't necessarily like that most of the time. They're pretty realistic. But this movie does manage to capture the dream state in a way that very few, if any, movies do. The idea of uh, Sarah trying to get away and then going through that tiny little window. Like, the the building itself is very dreamlike. I mean, that is something out of, like, a nightmare. And then she falls into, like, just this a bed of razor wire. Yeah. <laughs> As one keeps in their schools, every dancing school needs a room full of razor wire just in, just in case someone decides to climb through a window one night. But I love it. It's like she runs into this room first, and she's being pursued, and she locks the door, and the person's putting through the thing to lift the latch up, and she just stares at it in horror and back. Yeah. I'm like, just hold it down. But, like, you know, like, <laughs> but that's not how they do it because this, this film – follows the emotional logic yeah, as opposed yeah. to the actual logic and she just kind of starts backing away in horror that the idea that someone's going to actually try and lift yeah. it she just or can't it's handle a, it's it. just a, like a kind of a flimsy straight razor like as they're doing it like just like hit it try yeah. to break the th- bend it yeah but <laughs> bend instead, it so they can't get it out yeah, of the but, but that's but that's not the point of this movie so it's like no, no i'm gonna climb no. through this tiny fucking window at the top of the, like near the ceiling and fall into a pit of razors like now the dream thing is interesting because when we talked about uh the uh on the on the wrong wheel aspect of this two-parter with the the animal trilogy we talked a lot about like this the freudian kind of the explanations at the end yeah, yeah uh, the killers uh, there's some kind of freudian thing or the, either the the uh the girl was abused when she was little and now she's had that rehashed or or the her father kind of abused her by by growing by making her grow up as a boy and that's why she screwed up this idea of the freud thing now what's interesting in suspiria we kind of abandoned the whole freud thing and it becomes more of like a jung jung like <laughs> Carl Jungian uh, thing who, who believed that, uh, you know, the dreams, the study of dreams was a very important thing of for like psychoanalysis. And uh, so it's very interesting how he kind of sees shifting from this Freudian aspect to going with a whole different kind of view of philosophy. Well, so you had that scene where they with the, uh, the, the, the older Italian dude just explaining like the history of the witches and the history of the occult. This movie very overtly and very deliberately decides to go into that room by offering essentially an explanation about 70 minutes into it, just about what because up to this point you have no idea what's going on like you are totally at the mercy of just what like they tease to you but you basically can't follow anything until yeah. they finally say like all right for five minutes now we're going to talk about the plot and just give you something to work with and then yeah. the main character is actually allowed to play a role in the kind of the sure. final act yes we got uh, Udo Kier. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and kind of a bit part. And I will say that of maybe all Argento movies, uh, the Susie Banyan character played beautifully by uh, Jessica Harper is perhaps like the strongest, most realized protagonist. Oh, 100%. And she, I mean, that's just a testament to her, also her skills and actress. Is I don't care how flimsy the scene is she's going to find a way to breathe a little extra life into it. Yeah. You know, she, she can do a lot with very little. Cause you know, as you mentioned before, you know, 
the screenplays aren't necessarily the strongest attribute of Dario Argento, and, yeah. but she's like, well, she just give her the ball, she'll run with it, and she'll run, run a touchdown. Well, she's like perfectly cast in that Dario Argento has talked many times about how this was his attempt at a fairy tale. It works. Uh, so much so that he and the cinematographer watched uh, Snow White, screened the, the Walt Disney films uh, Snow White to kind of get visual clues as to how they should pursue uh, and so a lot of the visual aesthetic comes from watching snow white and thinking of this as like an alice in wonderland type adventure and the Susie banyan character and jessica harper does such a brilliant job she's so wide-eyed which is very you know snow whitey and she she looks the part but she does a brilliant job of playing innocent but strong like for like you believe that she can that she's up for this. Yeah, and you get the sense that when she first arrives that she's well-traveled and wise in the ways of the world. Just the, a couple of the girls are sitting around talking about men, and she speaks very casually in a very informed way. She, she doesn't seem innocent. She might be innocent to what is actually going on in this environment, but she seems like a very, very strong, experienced girl in a lot of ways, yeah. whereas a lot of these other girls seem very sheltered, like they've been living in dormitories and boarding schools their entire life and have sure. no experience with the outside world. Because when she gets the opportunity to stay off campus at someone's apartment, she leaps at it, and then yeah. they basically trick her into staying at the school again. And she's like, I don't like being in this like dormitory like I'm an 11-year-old. She's, like, yeah. she's an adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, it's interesting because you see the way the rest of the girls act. Now, originally when Argento made the movie, his plan was to have like 10 to 12-year-old girls. Gotcha play these parts well some of them still act like 10 to 12 well that's the thing is like, like it's sticking it, in their tongues out of each it other it is like yeah. a it's like a crossover mm. you know this uh the way they you know like uh, the whole thing where it's like i heard that i you know i've heard that people that have the s and you know big names begin with s are snakes and then they go nye, nye, and they're like and it's very yeah. it's, it's like children yeah yeah uh, it's a bit of a crossover from that and then he tries to kind of reinforce that because he wasn't allowed to use children by you notice inside the school, all of the doorknobs are at head level, not down at like waist level where doorknobs really are. So that all the girls, as they approach doors, every time Susie approaches a door or walks by a door, when she goes to open the door, she has to reach up for it. And it makes her look much smaller, almost like she's a child. Uh, so even though he wasn't able to do it, I mean that's my that's one of my big complaints about you know a lot of ballet movies like uh, Black Swan, for instance, where. She's getting her, you know, Natalie Portman's getting her chance, you know, and her mom was too old. It was like, well, Natalie Portman's too old. <laughs> 30. Yeah. 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 You know, like, like this is a young person's game. Yeah. You know, so uh, I kind of, you know, I like that he was trying to do children because that was maybe more realistic and, and probably even more horrifying uh, to, to see. But because he couldn't do that, he tried to preserve kind of the immaturity and also the size in a way by trying to manipulate the audience in that in that way. Uh, anything you want to say about this movie before we move on to it? Um, I guess just as I just I mean, not that I want to say, but just want to ask, like in terms of the lore, I'm a big fan of when, in fantasy universes or uh, just you know, understanding the history. How concrete or well developed or well established is the lore between these three movies? as established in Suspiria, because we get a little bit of lore in this. Is it cohesive, or does it come together? Because, like you said before, like logic is not necessarily front and, like, front and center in a lot of these movies. Is it something that is worthy of really like obsessing over, or do you just kind of like just roll with it and not worry about it? I think you just got to roll with it. I, I don't... To the best of my knowledge, 
he didn't make plan on making another one. Gotcha. Um, it wasn't until this one was a success that he was like, okay, well, you know, there are three mothers. We could, you know, maybe do a trilogy or at the very least gotcha. we could do another that, one. That was my assumption. Like I, I, before we started recording, I was like, should I like really learn like who the various like characters are in the history? But then I was like, you know what? It might not necessarily even really matter because all that matters is that at the end she confronts a witch, she kills the witch <laughs> and you know, she saves the day. Yeah. And the, you know, the undead creature about to kill her disappears as a result and so yeah. Yeah, I and uh, most of uh, most of everything is kind of done practically with practical effects. I mean, kind of the goal uh, for the for them shooting the movie was let's do everything that's not normal. And but let's try to do everything we can in production and not do as much post production. Uh but I think the lore and I only bring that up because that end scene where she kills you said she kills the witch. It's it it is almost as intense as the first. As oh, the it's beginning. I, I fucking love that scene. And there's even like a little nod to the bird with the crystal plumage. This idea, <laughs> there's this peacock, like statuesque peacock, sitting on the table, and she actually knocking it over and takes these like, like crystal plumage, crystal feathers, and that's what she ends up killing uh, the the witch with. But I I think the lore kind of develops. As they go on, I think they're inventing it gotcha. as they with Inferno and all those books and that sort of thing. What's interesting, you know, you think of this: the three mothers, three sisters, three witches. Uh, you know, you think of the the mother. Mother is something that brings life. You know, uh, this is and whereas of, these kind of take life. Yeah, and this is it. like yeah. the mothers of death, really. Yeah. And that kind of gets explained in Inferno, the second installment into the Three Mothers trilogy. Now you so you didn't discover this one until you kind of went on your binge for uh, yeah about a year ago. Now this movie, uh, until maybe the last couple of years, where I've accepted that maybe Deep Red is my favorite Argento movie forever. I said this movie was my favorite of Argento's movies, and it still is maybe number two. A maybe, Cat of Nine Tails was your favorite at one point as well. <laughs> it was my favorite of, of the, the of the three Jalo of, of the uh, not my favorite Argento. Cat of Nine Tails was my favorite of the. Uh, animal trilogy but inferno and maybe tomorrow i will say inferno is my favorite but today i'm going to say deep red <laughs> it might change from day to day inferno i just absolutely adore this movie i i will admit uh completely that i saw it many times said it was my favorite but uh, readily admitted that I had no idea what the hell was going on in it, but I still loved it. It was still my favorite. I think now I have a little bit more of an understanding of what's actually happening in the movie, but I still don't fully understand it. I don't know if, uh, I'm not sure Argento fully understands everything that's happening in this movie. Um, where does it stand for you on your uh, spectrum of Argento It was definitely movie? in the top, in the upper echelon. I don't know if I, my, my, I mean, my favorites... Opera, Suspiria, and Deep Red are probably my three favorite, but I do love this one just because it's so, the opening of it is so unusual where you kind of don't even know who the central character is going to be, but I love how within five minutes, this girl's like swimming underground in some weird, mysterious pit filled with dead people. I'm like, oh, this movie wasted no time at all before it went into this, the strangest, most bizarre, supernatural place Italian horror can go, and it's like, now... Where do where are we gonna go from here? And but like you know, but and every time you kind of think you know who the central character is, they end up getting killed, and it, you you're, you're never allowed to kind of settle. Yeah, which is what's cool about it. And it has also a very brief appearance 
by a woman who I think might be the hottest girl in the history of Italian cinema, <laughs> Anya Pieroni. Uh-huh. Who, the guy sitting there in class, and this strikingly beautiful woman with a giant cat wearing like a gown, like she's going to the Oscars, is just like staring at him. And I was watching, I was like, who the fuck is this girl? What does she have to do with the plot? But I can't take my eyes off her, so I got to find out who she is. And then apparently. Uh, well, I looked her up. She's in the movie Stay As You Are, the Nastasha Kinski, uh, okay. Marcella Mastoriani kind of softcore porn flick from the late 70s. She pops up in that quite a lot. She's kind of an, an also-ran who never quite made it, but I have no idea what her role is in the movie apart from just being hot, holding a giant cat. But once again, you just kind of roll with it. But you can't talk about this movie without talking about the Keith Emerson score. Yeah. for I mean, you're a musician. For people who don't know who Keith Emerson is, what would you say is kind of – I mean, who is the great Keith Emerson? Because I know him from his movie work mostly, but I know he's got an entirely different Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he was one-third of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which I think is what most people will know him from. Um, Unfortunately, he died recently. Yeah, like last year, right? uh, Cody Carpenter and I talked a little bit. Did he commit suicide or did he die? He committed suicide. Um, And the speculation was that it was uh, like Twitter trolls. That, what that drove him to it? Yeah, I don't know. It's speculation. Why did just turn off Twitter? He was very depressed in that he. I think he had you know like a lot of musicians, especially keyboard players, end up having wrist problems, things like carpal. Yeah, tunnel. like like yeah, like his nerves replaced and things like that. Like, he, and so he couldn't really play anymore. And I guess he was the word on the street is he was getting a lot of hate for it, and he felt very depressed about it. Hate and, for the the nerve damage or hate for some of his work? No, hate for like that he can't. He's not as good as he used to be, mm. and a lot of pointing that out, and that he can't do. He's not as great as he could be. And uh, the well, he was like a virtuoso performer at one point in his career. Like he could, like played the piano upside down with like you know. Oh yeah, I mean he was all kinds of crazy shit. The thing with when you're you're strapped to a keyboard or a piano, it's not like a guitar. You know what I mean? Like where you can run around the stage and it's a very phallic thing, and you can be sexy and you can do it. Um, so you get keyboard players that are very eccentric that try to figure out ways to make this more visually interesting a guy like edgar winter would strap an entire keyboard onto his back and you know to kind of be able to have be mobile with it whereas emerson uh argento talks about you know the reason why he wanted emerson was because he went to an emerson lake and palmer concert and there was there was a section of the concert where emerson would take knives and just like stab them in between the keys of the keyboard to get these like crazy sounds uh and, and so this idea of like throwing knives and stabbing the keyboard he's like, my guy i must have this man. but we were watching that documentary before we started recording and he was talking about these unusual time signatures that he would use like or yeah. uh, just when he's recording in five four time yeah which is also a really really disconcerting eerie rhythm that doesn't even allow you to kind of settle because it's constantly throwing you off the beat in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean the five four time signature is a, is it became a bit of a staple for horror, uh, strictly because uh, its origin being from tubular bells that uh, William Friedkin used in The Exorcist. William Friedkin's use of tubular bells is one of the most influential strokes of genius in in, in music, in that. Uh, it was that that kind of inspired Profondo Rosso's score, Deep Red score by Goblin, which in turn formed uh, and manipulated what would eventually, eventually become the uh, Suspiria score, which of those scores then in turn influenced John Carpenter. So Halloween's score, is that's in 5-4 time, the, the, the main theme for Halloween. So uh, yeah, Emerson, he gets called on, um, I think... This is 80s, so uh, Goblin is kind of in a weird transitional period. Um, and also, I think, uh, wanting to make the movie 
something other than Suspiria, he I think Argento also wanted a different kind of musical. It was an incredible inspired choice. I mean, he would this is like a few years before he did Murder Rock with Lucio Fulci, but Emerson wrote some of the best early '80s horror scores. Period, and he's just so he sounds unlike any other artist out there. And it's interesting because he's got his stuff, and it has a, there's a much more classical feel to his stuff than. Was it Puccini that he's adapting in Inferno? There's some classical composer. Yeah, his uh, work he's transforming. I think for it's Inferno. Verde. Oh, Ver- that's exactly who it is. That's exactly who it is. <clears throat> Which the piece, uh, the main characters, uh, well, who becomes our main character? Like you said, it's hard to kind of. Yeah, it's a girl who's like a friend of the sister of the main character, <laughs> and it's like. We finally do settle on a central character about yeah. halfway through, but it takes a while to get there. Like, but, oh, he's the hero of the movie. But the character in the beginning is is uh, she's a poet, and she's living. Uh, okay, there's a lot of stuff to cover here. Let's see. It's, <laughs> what's the easiest way to What's the easiest way to do? But this? even if you watch it sequentially, it's hard to understand exactly what's happening. Cause, uh, the three mothers. Uh, well, well, I'll sum this up as quickly as I can. Uh, as we were just talking, three mothers, three witches. We had one in Germany, and we discover that. There's this whole idea of alchemy in this movie, and that there is a uh, an architect that built a house for each of the the three mothers. The one in Germany was the school. The Inferno takes place in New York City, so this woman is living in that building that was built for for the Mother of Darkness. Um, the original, you know, Suspiria is the Mother of Sighs. This is the Mother of Darkness, and then the Mother of Tears is the house is in Rome. So our, the woman we kind of uh, are introduced to in the beginning, she's living in this house. She's becoming obsessed with the book of the three mothers. And she starts to realize that she's living in this house, <laughs> in this building. And so she becomes a little bit of a detective, an uh, amateur detective, trying to solve this idea of, like, what's going on? This is a house. Her brother is a, is a music student in Rome. So we have, again, this idea of the Argento using uh, artistic protagonists. We had Susie was a dancer. We have this woman as a poet. Uh, her brother ends up becoming our main protagonist. He's a music student in Rome. Um, so, the, But the piece they're studying and a piece that this is how I, this is my thought process coming back around. You're talking about the Verde. Um, the piece they're studying and the piece that she ends up, the the friend of the brother ends up playing to that guy, Carlo, who she picks up off the street. <laughs> he's like, oh, come up and keep me company. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a sports journalist. And, and he's uh, like, yeah, I only believe in what I can like see and touch. And, and we start to, and this movie's also kind of, we start to see a lot of recurring faces and things. There's a lot of throwbacks to other Argento movies. Like, he's the main not the killer, but he's the he's the son of the killer in Deep Red, the actor. Um, so it's a, here we see a familiar face, but she puts on a Verde piece. Uh, so we have this classical piece being played uh, in the movie. It's it's a significant piece of the movie, and it's just the classical piece being played straight. Argento tells Emerson, "Okay, I want you to do the score, but the one thing is, you have we have to have this other Verde piece uh, in it." Now the piece that's being played as the kind of the orchestral piece is like Va Pensaro, the chorus of the Hebrew slaves. That's the classical. That's like, and what's the term again for music that actually in the movie that people get you know, diagenic or diagetic? Dia- diagetic. Diagetic. So that's a diagetic piece of music. <laughs> yes. And the non-diagetic, which is uh, the piece that's kind of Emerson Nabucco or Nabucho with a double C. Uh, 
that's another piece that Arsenio was like, okay, you, I want you to do the music, but we have to have this. You have to do this piece of music. Um, so he he does that with the five four times signature. So it becomes this crazy progressive rock synthesized, wacky thing that ends up being used as the first girl, um, the sister of Mark. So uh, Rose. That's who we think is going to be the protagonist. There's a little bit of a of a psycho you know, sleight of hand trick here where we think we're going to follow Rose to the story. Rose ends up uh, biting it pretty early on. Um, is that when the clawed hands, the, the, the clawed hands return once again, the clawed hands are back <laughs> <laughs> with, with no explanation. She drops. She's, she's trying to find the clues. This is, this is a tough movie to, to kind of <laughs> yeah, discuss. You can't do the 25 words or less summary. Uh, uh, because there's so many interesting things to talk about. Rose is trying to find the clues to find out about the three mothers by using this book. And she follows these clues. She Again, we have like a rain. We have, she's, I guess it's not in the rain, but I believe she's wet at this point. But the cab ride. Yeah. It's echoing the cab ride from Suspiria. When, 100%. When Susie comes out of the that's airport. That's when you get the. Yeah, that's where this yeah. piece exists. This Verde piece done with a crazy 5-4 signature, uh, time signature with uh, kind of all synthed out. That's where he uses it. And, and Emerson talks about how like, well, it's perfect. It's so fucking weird. It's, it's weird, but it's like that. It's like the perfect place for because if he's like if you ever you know drove around in an italian cab you're being bounced around five four times is like the perfect yeah time signature so we have this echoing of like a little bit we have the cab driver from suspiria cab ride where susie's going to the school she's soaking wet the crazy colors now the cab driver is the same cab driver uh another little nod he has the same actor play the cab like the angry cab driver from suspiria is the cab driver that takes a uh, rose around town here and in, in trying to pursue her clues, Rose goes down into the basement of the building, ends up dropping her keys into a hole, presumably like a puddle in the in the floor of this basement. But it's like something out of the Amityville Horror <laughs> or like Lucia Fulci's The Beyond. It's like a, almost like a hole into another dimension for some reason. Yeah, and uh, you know, or labyrinth or something like that. Yeah. But it ends it's up a being different world down there. There's like this under ground underwater ballroom or study or something so she drops her keys and they're stuck on like a chandelier that's on the ceiling which is the the underneath the floor that she's standing on uh and she tries to reach it she can't get it so uh she decides the best plan of action is to take her shoes off and just get into this puddle of this whole <laughs> thing with all her clothes on um and then she ends up dropping the keys they fall off the chandelier she goes down to get them and that's where we discover that there's this bizarre uh, surreal like universe room down there. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, doesn't make any sense, but I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie by far. But again, it's like this idea it's terrifying down there. It's it's so weird that it is like you can only imagine it as being some kind of weird dream. And then of course there's dead body floating around down there. We don't know of who. course it doesn't matter. Why not? Yeah. Uh, and then she comes back up. She ends up getting. Uh, killed by the crazy hairy hand. Um, I can shine a little bit of light on this mysterious woman in the classroom for you. Okay, yeah, bring. I love Anya Pieroni because I mean, like I said, it's purely like a sexual infatuation. But I'm totally bewildered by what she's supposed to, what what role she serves in terms of the plot. Okay, so uh, we talked about uh, the mother of size, Suspiriarum or whatever. Is, is she's in Germany? We have the house in. New York City, 
and that's uh, Tenebrarum, Metro Tenebrarum. Uh, you are a lore whore on this. I like it. I was asking everybody <laughs> if the lore matters, but clearly it does because you know it well. Uh, well, I am an Argento uh, fanatic, and uh, so I, I've seen these movies way more than maybe people should see these movies. <laughs> uh, but there's this talk of. There's a third mother, Mother of Tears, which we will get to the uh, completion of this trilogy after we talk a little bit about, more about Inferno. And she's the most beautiful of the mothers. Gotcha. Well, the, and she's Pieroni in, definitely and, qualifies. And she's in Rome. Which is where the, he's in school. Which is so, where yeah. he's in school. So she is playing the Mother of Tears. Just chilling in a music class? just <laughs> Chilling. Well, you don't know if anybody can see her other yeah, than Yeah, I feel like it's only him. I feel like that, at least that was my interpretation. And now we don't know why. We don't know why, but she's keeping an eye on him, and then we see her again as she drives. I think when his friend gets murdered and he comes out uh, and he's talking to the police, I believe she drives by in the back of a taxi. But yep. I think that's I think that's who she's supposed to be. Okay, that makes I sense. I mean, I don't have I'll roll with it. I don't have concrete evidence, but after several viewings, <laughs> yeah, but she is striking to behold. Uh, but it also kind of uh, you know you. Again, you can't look at the stuff. Uh, I didn't know if it tied into the guy who's like murdering and drowning cats later on. Like, there's that guy who's the the killer from The Untouchables who likes putting cats in bags and like trying to like drown them in water and stuff like that. Makes yeah, well, it. he he owns the antique store next door to the the building in in uh, in New York City, uh, the Metro Tenebrarum's house, uh, and he's the one that sold Rose the book of the three mothers. Now, I guess. The, the whole thing is the witches. There's but there's all these stray cats around, and I don't know. I don't necessarily know that he's taking joy like it's his hobby, but he's always like these damn cats. Like keep them out of us. Because I felt a little sorry for the cats, and yeah, he's just putting them all in this in this bag, and then just like his, yeah, just, well, and then he tries yeah. to drown them in Central Park. Yeah, and, and then it's, it's getting taken out by the rats, <laughs> and he's like they're eating me alive. <laughs> it's it's for me. It's as weird and unusual as the guy getting eaten by his own dog in Suspiria. It's just like you have these random. Halfway through the movie, you got to have a random animal attack scene. Yeah, yeah. And well, I guess you're trying to they're trying to play on that lore of that the the witches like he's sharing knowledge about them, so they got to take him out, kind of. Yeah, like that the uh, they control they can control the animal life because um, the, there's I guess there's no real uh, I, I don't think there's any real like payoff in that there's ants in the apartment and stuff, but. Uh, um, one thing I will say about Inferno, and I think it's one of the things I love about this and why I, I, I kind of covet this movie so much, is we talked about like the crazy colors and the visual aesthetic of the Suspiria. Now, in my mind, and I, I'm sure I'm in the minority, I feel like Suspiria is the practice run. And whatever, okay. and whatever he Dario Argento is trying to do visually in Suspiria, he like refines it and kind of perfects it with Inferno. It's I, it's I, a I much it's that, like man. a much cleaner version visually than Suspiria is. The colors are it's a, bleeding all over the place. It's a little it's, more subtle. It's not like this is the green scene, this is the blue scene, this is the red scene. Yeah, and yeah. The, the the colors are more they're more defined in the way that they're used, and they're they're like kind of uh, more pointed and. Uh, you know, there's a target as part of just being all over the place. And I love as, as crazy and as elaborate and almost luscious as the set, the sets are in Suspiria. I love like the sets and the surroundings that the characters are in Inferno. Um, when he goes downstairs or whatever, or she goes down, somebody goes downstairs and there's all these like old, like 
all those chairs that are just like stacked up, which are, you know, you imagine in a bar or something, <laughs> you know, like same wooden chairs you've seen probably throughout your whole life growing up in different places. Uh, it's almost like a, it's almost like a backstage, uh, like a show or something. The library is like it's amazing. Just, yeah, it's just it's gorgeous and and surreal and huge. And you, in that library, you get a lot of this. I love it when he does these things. He does it a little bit in Mother of Tears as well, where the camera's just like pushing through doors and the doors are opening. Yeah, yeah. You get a lot of those long shots, and it's one of the things I liked about Mother of Tears. Mother of Tears has a lot to criticize, but it does have a few of those little callbacks to some of the earlier films in the trilogy. Yeah. So I mean, I've always kind of admired this idea that maybe I've created this notion of, you know, he's managed to take what he was trying to do in Suspiria visually and kind of really fine tune it. How was Inferno regarded upon its initial release? Was it warmly received? It makes me just wonder how come he didn't return to this trilogy sooner than he did. Uh, Well, clearly Suspiria was a big hit. I think, uh, you know, like Fox, like distributed this, and I think they were kind of like embarrassed by it. I don't think Hollywood really knows what to do with Argento, and I think you know, like I think happens with a lot of European directors. It's like we want you to come here and make movies, or we want to distribute your movies. Well, they dream of Rosemary's Baby. They want like <laughs> an exotic European director to come and give them box office gold. That's what they want. But we don't want you to do what you do. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, his... Creeper. I feel like is maybe his most successful attempt to kind of go in Hollywood, maybe. Like for me, it, yeah. it, maybe just because Jennifer Connelly, I just so so closely associated with Hollywood as opposed to European cinema, that it just feels like more of like a yeah. Hollywood movie in a lot of ways. Well, he doesn't actually come to America to make a movie until Two Evil Lies and Trauma. Interesting. Okay, so Creeper's made abroad. Yeah, and he's also, uh, I don't think Two. I think Two Evil Lies is his first stab at like making a movie with sound, with actual sound. <laughs> It's like I've been doing this for twenty years. I'm going to try using. One, I'm you know, in it's America. All about sight and sound. I'm in I'm America. Try using the second half of filmmaking. I'm going to do the American way of, of doing it. It's funny because even in the Suspiria, it it never would even occur to me to think about the fact that it was recorded after the fact. Maybe this sounds a little off here and there, but it uh, it never distracted me. Because no. usually I get distracted by it, even if it's with a movie that I love. It's more distracting in Inferno than it is in Suspiria. Suspiria is really good. I mean, you obviously. Uh, Jessica Harper did her own voice, yeah, and it, it matches and it sounds great. Even like the woman who plays like the big German, you know, woman who's like the second, I guess, third in command, got Helena Marcos. Yeah, she's the female lead from Third Man. Uh, uh, but then you have that the Joan Bennett, but then there's the other one. Um, it's like Ida Viley or something. Yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, that's the girl from Third. Even Man. her, like, yeah. I don't think she does her own voice in that, but it matches. Where yeah. like we see her again in this movie. With some other voice, and it totally doesn't matter. Yeah. It's kind of like <laughs> jarring when she pops up. Um, uh, but even uh, the guy, even Mar- the character of Mark, our, kind of our main character, played by Lee McClowski. I mean, even even though it's his voice and he has like a very you know distinct voice, it doesn't always seem to match and so then well. He had a, a, an 80s career. Was he in just one of the guys? What the hell is he in? He's in something that I recognize him from. I think he would have been too old for that. Um, Hang on, I, I got I got to look this dude up because he's like he's such like kind of like like an eighties hunk with like the, you know like the great hair and everything. Whoops, I'm looking at Inferno for 2016. That I believe he might have been on Dallas or some primetime soap opera, and I think he did some TV movies, but I don't know, uh, you know, if he did anything kind of major motion picture wise other than this. Interesting note: Dion and I always, often like to play what we call the "what if" game, which is. Uh, 
when you find out like who was up for a part or who did they want to play the part and we try to speculate as to what it would have been like and in this movie we have uh for the character he wasn't just one of the guys 1985 he plays the older boyfriend of the central character interesting yeah five years i should have known that yeah because that's that's where i first recognized him from (laughs) that's one of the first movies where i saw boobs back in the day i love just one of the guys a movie that i've been dying to do on our regular uh podcast Uh, and we actually had uh last weekend i i Dion and I were at Monster Mania in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and we had some listeners come and, and say hi in person, and, and uh, just one of the guys was requested. Yeah, it's definitely, if you were a kid watching cable TV in the 80s, you saw that movie far more times than it deserved to be seen. <laughs> but he's the guy who, when, and then the, like, the first thing in the movie, he's like, how can you always tie your bikini with double knots? Like, he has no respect for the fact that she wants to be a journalist, so yeah, he is that guy. Good old Lee McClowski. Who's Lee McClowski? That's the guy. Who oh, that's the actor. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I know by his hair. It's getting late. It's getting late here at the, the my mom my mom's basement. But what if game style? You know, uh, uh, the person who was originally signed on to do this movie, or at least they wanted to. I believe he actually even agreed, but then something happened schedule wise. James Woods. No shit. They were gonna. He was gonna be in this movie. I love him. There was some interesting. Uh, you know, backpedaling just a little bit, we had a couple of interesting um, what-if game aspects. I think for Four Flies on Grey Velvet, there was talk of uh, Terrence Stamp playing he, that part. He would have been perfect. Um, he was in his prime back then. Michael, he's still, he's still Michael good, but... York, I believe, for the main part in Four Flies on Grey Velvet. And there was also talks of maybe John Lennon or Ringo Starr playing that part. Oh, that would part. be killer. But for Michael York, would that have been, pre, that would have been pre-Logan's Run? Would it have not? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, Logan Drone so. was like 75, maybe? Yeah, so that's like 71, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, getting back to uh, Ian McClowski and the ADR work. Uh, Inferno. Um, so if someone were to ask you at the time when this was your favorite Argento flick, what is it specifically about it that really cements it as one of his all-time great flicks where you're just like, look, you're, you're not a true Argento fanatic until you know and love Inferno for the following reasons. You know, that's kind of the beautiful thing about Argento and this movie specifically is that there is there's no answer for that. It really just kind of hit me on some kind of weird like I said, I for years I said this is my favorite movie, but I cannot tell you what that is. Well there are emotional experiences and it's hard to explain emotion sometimes logically and Yeah, and that's also like plot wise, I you know, even now, I like I said, I don't really understand what's happening fully. I understand more now than I did ten, fifteen years ago. But back then I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I still love it. And I think that was part of like <laughs> that was part of it. It was like the mystery. Yeah. yeah. Like me not even understanding why I loved it so much might have been why I loved it so much. You know what I mean? What did he make right after Inferno? Maybe I'm guessing Tenebrae. So, that, so it was Inferno d- directly after Suspiria in terms of his chronology? Well, that was 77. Well, I think so because I think he wrote Inferno in New York City in a hotel room overlooking Central Park. As he was waiting for George Romero to finish Dawn of the Dead. Interesting. Okay. Because he, uh, which we talk a little bit about in the George Romero podcast. Yeah, they were freaking collaborators, but they don't even speak the same language. Like, Dario's never learned a word of English. <laughs> and then mostly, like, they, George Romero talks about dinner with him. There's a lot of hand gestures yeah. and, like, smiles and laughter. But somehow they've managed to make a lot of movies together and, and they don't speak a word of the same language. But uh, Dario was going to be the, he got European money for it by saying, I'll be the, you know, I'll be the European producer. So he has his own cut called Zombie. Um, With just an I on the end, no E. No E. And 
So in 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 uh, yeah, it goes Suspiria, Inferno, Tenebrae, Phenomena, then Opera. Yeah, so, that's a hell of a run there. That's so, a really good run there from Deep Red through Opera. Holy shit! I mean, that is six arguably horror masterpieces yeah. in a row. And you know, the reason why there's so much time between Suspiria and Inferno is that he's helping make Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> which is yet another masterpiece. Yeah. Um, so he wrote he wrote it. Uh, Dario Nicolotti says that she came up with the original story, and unlike Suspiria, where he gave her credit, uh, Inferno he. He did not denied. give her credit. I guess there was this was maybe a, he was not feeling nice. That it was day, on a they, down, they fought a lot. <clears throat> it was on the downswing of their relationship, I think. And uh, she came up with the original story. And she made notes and stuff, and then apparently he took the notes to America and he wrote the script based on those notes. Again, it's it's about witchcraft, obviously, but it, there's a lot of bit uh, alchemy and there's a lot of talk about alchemy, which is kind of the precursor to chemistry and. People think of alchemy. Turning lead into gold. That's uh, the thing people, most people talk about, but Argento and Argento's minds is there's that aspect of it, obviously, but there's also just like the study of things like the supernatural. If they'd ever stuff. figured out how to turn lead into gold, though, clearly these alchemists were not economists because if you turn on the lead into gold, guess what? Gold no longer is rare <laughs> and it no longer has value. It's as valuable as lead. So you've defeated your own accomplishment. So yeah, I've never understood that. And I think and the other thing is uh, the. We talk about the visceral experience of Suspiria. We talked about it in the Animal Trilogy. And the same thing goes here. The Emerson music is great. Um, much more classically oriented than the Goblin music is, but equally as enjoyable in my opinion. I love the score to this movie. I love the visuals of this movie. And then I love the end of this movie. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why. I always say, like when I saw Rogue One, for instance, I really disliked the first two-thirds of that movie and everybody forgets the first two-thirds kind of sucks because the last third is so good exactly it erases all memories like oh I, we were watching an average movie until it became a really <laughs> good movie and i remember even while i was watching it in the theater of rogue one i was saying to myself this is really bad like the script is not good like the dialogue's yeah. not good characters you don't care about doing things you don't care about going rem- to planets that you don't care about <laughs> but i remember even like being a, an avid movie watcher, being someone who studied film, someone who taught film, uh, unfortunately, sometimes I am, am not always able to just uh, chill and watch. Yeah, it. Yeah. But I remember even in my head being like, uh, while I was watching and be like, this movie kind of is bad, but if this movie ends strong, this is going to be the perfect example of like, all you got to do yeah, is end strong. You totally <laughs> redeem yourself. Cause yeah. if this movie ends great, I'm going to walk out of this movie happy. And that was the case with Rogue One. Yeah, but a lot of people are convinced it's the best Star Wars movie because of that last one. I'm like, I might calm down a little bit. <laughs> like, it's not the best Star Wars movie. It is an absolute blast to watch. But yeah, one third of a movie does not a movie make. But the end of this movie is very memorable to me personally, and I think that might be why forever this was my favorite Argento movie. I love you know when Mark starts to explore and he finds that he goes underneath the, you know, in between the floors of the, of the building, but then he gets down to the basement and then there's that great, like patented Argento shot where there's like darkness and then the door opens and that's a figure in the lit door, which happens in bird with crystal plumage. It happens often, but it's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's such an awesome shot uh, in the end of Inferno. And then, when he confronts the old guy who has to use the voice box, which is just weird and bizarre, and he's being strangled by the cord of the voice machine. Um, but then when he confronts the mother of darkness, I just love it. I love 
it. I love every part of it. Uh, she's great. Uh, Mark is again kind of very passive. We we're talking about that with uh, Four Flies and Gray Velvet in the last episode that we talked. You know, the first part of this uh, two-parter. He's not that active, and he's kind of walking through everything almost in a daze, which is kind of cool because it's it is very dreamlike in a way. He's not obviously you know he's there trying to figure out what happened to his sister, um, trying to solve this mystery, but he's just instead of actively being pushed through the story, he's the story's just pulling him through it, and he's passively being pulled. And then we get to this finale where he's confronted with the, the mother of darkness and she, her spiel is very powerful. And he's like, you know, no matter what you call us, we're all under the same name. And then she, she's, you don't even, she's not even there. She's in a mirror, <laughs> which is crazy. And then she bursts through the mirror and, and she's it's like a death. And, and then the place just like kind of goes in up in an inferno. It's just, it's so powerful. It's giving me like chills. Like, yeah. I, but I still don't even understand even as you recap it, what the fuck is actually happening? It's like, she's like, it's death, and like breaks through. But it's like, but what, if you were trying to summarize the plot, like what is actually happening? And you can't quite put it into words. No, because it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, like, <laughs> when I used to teach the the horror class and we got to the Argento thing, I was just like, just let it happen. Like, don't worry about it. What's actually happening? Yeah, just, shh, shh, just, just let it happen. Just, let it, just watch it. It's either no more talky talky. The story's either kind of so simple that it doesn't matter, or it's so convoluted that it doesn't make sense. And um, if you get caught up in those things, which we've been saying a lot during this particular talking about this specific movie, like you can't get caught up in it. You just have to let it happen. Yeah. And if you let it happen, and you just are uh, open minded enough to just experience it, and just let like these colors and this crazy music and death burst bursting through one just like wash over you. There's a very good chance that you might be able to say like this movie is fucking awesome, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, and then again we end with like a, the a building going up in flames, which is, again is a bit of a throwback to Suspiria. Yeah, it, as a double feature, it's rock solid. It just it if. The third movie had managed to be as strong as these. People would regard it as the all-time great horror trilogy. I don't even know what the all-time horror trilogy like masterpiece is. Is there even a great horror trilogy out there that's really great? I'm not aware of any. I might well, say Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein's a great two-parter, but I can't think of any trilogies that are great. Like a lot of people like Exorcist three, but everybody hates Exorcist two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Because then, if you even get into like series, Polanski's usually... apartment trilogy. It's not even really a trilogy, but it... <laughs> well, it's one of those thematic trilogies. It's a thematic like, trilogy. Like so. the uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, totally. I mean, because I love all three of those movies. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, uh, we're talking about uh, Rosemary's Baby, Repulsion, and The Tenant. Um, which I would love to. We should do that at some point. If you haven't already done it, I've, with already, somebody well, else. I, I've already com- I've already committed. <laughs> To do it with another person, so well, another another podcast. Maybe. Yeah, it's like this this podcasting world. It's like having it's like high school dating where it's like you know people asking each other the various proms and everything. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like sometimes like do you want to like wait and see if you can get like the really hot chick to go with you? Or, but yeah, but yeah, I have made a a soft commitment to cover the apartment trilogy. So uh, we see uh, kind of consecutively in his directorial efforts, we have Suspiria and Inferno. 
Now, despite the fact that Dario Nicolodi at the time had said that she was writing a script for The Mother of Tears, uh, you know, in the early 80s, it actually doesn't surface as a realized project until 27 years later or something like yeah. that. Um, you know, we're in, Suspiria came out in 1977, so we're actually... F- 30 years past the original. I know, well, no. Yeah, yeah, 30 years past What the hell year is the Mother of Tears? <laughs> I think it's 2007, right? That's 2007. Yeah, yeah. So that's 30 years since Suspiria. Uh, but we're right now in the midst of an anniversary. Yeah, Mother of Tears 2007, so 30 years to the day after Suspiria. And then, so right now we're 10 years. So we're 40 years since Suspiria now. Yeah, and so we're celebrating a, a Suspiria uh, anniversary, and we're also in the midst of a remake. Which could be interesting. It's from the guy who did like a bigger splash and um, what the hell he did, did he direct? I think that's the only film I've seen by him. But his style is so different from Dario. I'm honestly kind of hoping, like, apart from the name Suspiria, Suspiria, that his approach is so completely different. People don't even think of it as a remake. It's just a, a kind of a reimagining of this concept. But yeah. We'll see. There's a lot of people who are sharpening their knives ready to eviscerate it. I'm going to give it at least a chance. Well, they've been talking about it for like 10 years now. So I think that's part of the why Mothers of Tears ended up getting made. I think there was they were celebrating the anniversary of Suspiria. I think there was talk of a Suspiria remake. Uh, I think Argento was ready to maybe revisit it. It's one of his most recent movies. I mean, since then, he's only done Giallo and Dracula 3D since Mother of Tears. So it's one of his most current films. Yeah. Uh, and it was the fr- it was the first Argento movie that I saw in the theater on the first run. <laughs> Very nice, excellent. I will say this: I mean, Mother Tears has you can you can you can have fun tearing it to pieces in a million different ways, but it does have its moments. And I would argue that one of the most like immediately shocking and grotesque sequences of his entire career is when they're at the museum and Asia and the, her uh, co-worker are pulling all these things out of this crate yeah. and then this girl gets attacked by these like demons who like shove something in her mouth and like basically widens her mouth and pulls her teeth out and they like chop her open with a knife and start strangling her with her own intestines. It's a really, really brutal, gruesome sequence. It's not as wildly stylized as some of his 70s stuff, but in terms of sheer impact, it knocks you on your ass yeah. when you first see it. Uh, and there is an amazing photo that uh, I've seen online where, because which is one thing we didn't talk about in uh, the Animal Trilogy, uh, uh, or yet for that matter, is that more times than not, Argento's hands are the killer's hands. Gotcha. He likes to play the killer. It's a very important part of the film. It's very personal to him. Uh, it's very, like we said, it's also very sensual. So he often plays the gloved hand. So there is a fantastic shot of uh, uh, the the girl who, the woman who plays Asi's co-worker is named Coralina Cataldi Tassani. She's a great actress. She's a great person. I actually know her. And she's from Demons 2. She's an opera. So she's she's been a frequent Argento collaborator. But there's a Great photo online, uh, and I suggest you Google it because there's a shot of it's him stabbing her in the chest for in that scene, and his mouth he's like so into it, he's like ah! nice, <laughs> and she's like she's she looks like she's actually getting uh, stabbed. It's a great shot. Um, 
she's a, a, an interesting person. She lives here in New York, at least most of the time. She actually came to see me play one time. Very cool. Many years ago, she came to one of my shows. Uh, so I was this is before or after you were an inductee into the Hall <laughs> of Fame. This was way before. This was uh, oh, maybe ten years ago. Uh, and I see her sometimes around town and stuff, uh, and we exchange emails every now and then. Uh, she's very cool, and she'll often pop up if something plays that she's in in New York. You know, if Demon Two screens or Opera screens, she'll, she'll often kind of show up to answer questions. She's very cool. Uh, Mother of Tears, like we said, two thousand seven, written with Jace Anderson and Adam Girach. Uh, I guess a writing team that's best known for writing many of Toby Hooper's more recent stuff, like Mortuary and and uh, films like that. Yeah, this is not uh, the strongest of the trilogy. <laughs> it is not. But it has its little moments that I think... I've seen it twice now that I actually enjoy. I love the opening credit sequence with all the paintings. That's the coolest sure. shit. I love the sequence that's like a third of the way in that's almost like a comic book with like with the hand-drawn yeah, yeah. images when they're given some of the background information. It's just a lot of the movie... Whatever, Asia is much better, I feel like, when she's acting in other people's films than her father's. I don't mm-hmm. know why, but when she's in other people's movies, like in like New Rose Hotel, the Abel Ferrar film, she comes to life in a way that yeah. she doesn't in his movies. And I don't understand the disconnect. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but Asia, the, the daughter of Dario Argento and Dario Nicolodi, um, and Dario Nicolodi comes, shows up in this movie, and she hadn't been in a Dario movie, in a Dario Argento movie since opera, I think. Asia started being in Argento films, I think, with... Like in 1993 or four or something like that? Well, even as a child, she maybe wasn't directed by her father, but I think she's in Demons 2, and she's in The Church, which are produced by Argento. Yeah, but, I mean, she grew up in the movie biz, and you know, it sounds like a fucking blast. Uh, I love The Church. Uh, Demons 2 uh, is a Lamberto Bava film, music by... Simon Boswell. We talk a little bit about that in my book, Score to Death. Plugs, bitches. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, she pops up in Trauma, 1993, and yeah, Church, 1989. But yeah, she's I mean, now she's even directed 14 films of her own. Now, I mean, yeah, she's a total seasoned veteran at this point. She's only 41 years old. I mean, she's still relatively young. Yeah, and uh, it's funny when I was doing the Hellbent for Horror cast, we started talking about movies, my kind of recommendations, and I was trying to think of movies from decades that. You know, movies that nobody talks about. And I picked Trauma. It's like from the 90s. Because I love Trauma. And nobody, even Argento fans were like, I love Argento. Uh, but anything past, I was like, well, have, what have you, you know, people haven't seen it. And still they kind of trash it or they just, they don't even think about it. So there's even Argento fans that haven't seen it or appreciate it or anything. But I just love that movie. It's so weird. It's so fucked up <laughs> in a way. And as I was telling S.A., who hosts, uh, ASA, uh, the event for Harcast. It's very telling about his, his and her personal life. It's more telling about Argento, Dario Argento, I think, than maybe any other movie. It's a it's a very interesting film. It has a great cast. It's an American film, so it's got like Brad Dorif and Piper Laurie and uh, Frederick Forrest. It's a really and just like the driving thing about that like the MacGuffin of that movie is so incredibly fucked up that you would never imagine it (laughs) (laughs) how somebody wrote it is beyond beyond my comprehension but yeah so she's then she did send hall syndrome with him which i've Uh, I've seen that as well as well yeah it's not you know no one's gonna say it's argento's best movie but it's worth watching yeah it's certainly interesting um 
it's uh, Argento kind of discovers CGI effects, and it's this whole thing where she plays a character that, when she looks into art, she kind of gets like uh, uh, enveloped in it. And it's definitely cool. It's definitely got a lot of cool stuff about it. Some people will say that's his last good movie some yep. people will say opera is his last good one um i personally like like i've said i like sleepless which comes out in 2000 a lot and i don't even you know i don't even really mind mother of tears so much it's got some good bits like when the demons first kind of emerge and the like these cultists start kind of making their presence felt and causing all sorts of chaos there has one creepy scene where a girl just takes her own baby and throws it off a bridge yeah. and like basically smashes its head off the side and i was like whoa <laughs> that's fucking Evil, like you know, it's, it's got its moments. It's definitely uh, suffers from, I don't know. I think from being like low budget Italian. Well, cinema. there's something very silly about like demonic, otherworldly creatures who have fake tits. I'm like, if you're gonna have girls be <laughs> nude and they're like yeah. ancient beings or whatever, fake boobs, yeah, kind of destroys the illusion. That's, that's my yeah. biggest complaint of Mother of Tears is that the Mother of Tears. Has 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 fake tits. It, it makes. I mean, fine. And we're not but, talking about like special effects fake tits. We're yeah, we're talking, talking about, about like, like giant she's prosthetic had a, tits. She's like, had a boob job. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's distracting. Like I don't mind fake tits at all, unless you're supposed to be like a three thousand year old being or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And Then it's like then it kind of destroys the illusion. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's definitely my least favorite part of that movie. Not that I'm I don't mind looking at her tits. Yeah, and I love how she's defeated. By just ha- yanking her shirt off, like that's like <laughs> it's like how do you kill the enemy? Oh, you yank your shirt off and you show her fake tits again. Like, well, it, yeah, it's like. Well, you know, I kind of alluded to this, or maybe not alluded, just plain out said uh, in the first half of this two-parter when we're talking about a Mother of Tears and we're talking, about, I mean, we're talking about the Animal Trilogy and we're talking about like the sensualness of the violence and the death in Italian cinema, but especially Argento cinema. And I said, why I don't think it. Maybe maybe one reason why people don't connect with the later work is that there's something that gets lost somehow. Uh, it's the stuff is not essential, and I've often said that I feel the weirdness about Mother of Tears for me is that it feels way more like a Lucio Fulci movie than it does Argento. The idea of opening this thing and unleashing evil is like a very... It's like the beyond, yeah. It's a very beyond City of the Living Dead or Gates of Hell, depending. To me, it'll always be Gates of Hell, but to most other people these days, it's City of the Living Dead. Well, the poster from the VHS cover from our childhood was Gates (laughs) of Hell, so yeah. It's a classic, iconic poster. But yeah, there's also just some other stuff in here that's kind of cheesy, like the uh, kind of like the spirit mother kind of like uh, images. It just feels so low budget. Yeah, yeah. It just it just doesn't fly. And but it has this moment. There's a moment where Aja Argento like crutches some girl's head in a doorway, and that's pretty hardcore. So it's got its little moments like, all right, I'm watching a Dario Argento yeah. movie, but it just it also feels a lot like dimension and Argento. Like, well, let's find a project to do together, but without putting a lot of like thought and care into it. Yeah, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I kind of agree, and I, and I think like the violence is so like uh, when Coralina Tassani uh, when she gets murdered, the scene you were talking about, which is cool and it's and it's great and it's it's effective, but it feels even that feels more Fulci to me. That's more zombie beyond someone getting their throat pulled out or something it's it's the Fulci kills I always love is when somebody pulls out the back of your head for whatever there are a lot of scenes I think in City of the Living Dead where like you're just constantly having a guy like reaching like Play-Doh and just pull out the back of your skull and it's it's terrifying looking but it happens over and over again yeah but you know Argento in this one gets so preoccupied with the gore and the 
excess of that. But the magic is lost. That yeah. it do, it doesn't have the Argento. But just t- if you're gonna do t- a trilogy that involves Suspiria and Inferno, you need those fucking colors. You need red, green, and blue, and or a hybrid of the. But you need to have some of that visual aesthetic as well, and that's totally, completely, utterly lacking in this. So it just it just it's a little bit more routine in its visuals. Yeah, I, I don't know. But no baggage claims that are lit completely you know, red. I wonder how much of that is money. I mean, obviously, he didn't have money for the elaborate sets that he had with the older but films. But making a room red can't be that expensive. I mean, how many like dive bars have you played in playing the blues that they've got it all lit in one color? Oh, I color? know. I know what you mean. I, I wonder why he didn't, whether it's like he felt that wouldn't be true to himself now, uh, if it was rehashing old stuff, if it was they maybe felt like it would look cheesy now with the the way things are done. Uh, I don't know why. You're right. It doesn't feel like a third. I mean... They, they, they should have just made a standalone movie and not made it part of the, the Three Mothers. Yeah. Just let the Three Mothers remain unfinished. So in our imagination, there would always be this last great unfinished masterpiece that never happened. Uh, I agree. Uh, but with that said, some of my favorite stuff in this movie is, you know, when you start... When they start telling you about the other mothers yeah you know, when you're re- yeah, if you're a lore t- whore if you're a lore whore it's in there yeah <laughs> when they start telling you about the other movies and uh Susie banyan killed uh you know helena marcos and then fried and friedberg and uh you know the the inferno they start talking about that stuff and udo kier comes back as a different character in this one but it's nice to see yeah but for me when i was preparing for this episode this two-part episode i basically started with this movie because you know i want the movies to get better and better as i go and so i went this Cat of Nine Tales, and then like, so, and then Inferno. I kept zigzagging back and forth between the two trilogies, but I wanted to end on the Crystal, Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Suspiria, and so I was kind of working my way up to those two films that I love so well. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's a, certainly a way to do it. I want, I did, I went chronologically. I wanted to see kind of like the progression uh, of things. Um, okay, interesting. Let's see, interesting things about this one. Again, we have a cab ride. I think, obviously, I think a very conscious nod. We have Asia driving around in a cab. Uh, Claudio Simonetti comes back to do this, the music for this movie. He's one of the driving forces of Goblin. I can't even remember, but what are the specific themes that are played in this movie? Can you, can you, do you remember the melodies? No, unfortunately, it's the movie, it's, well, I think. Because Suspiria and Inferno are so hummable. Yeah. Well, it's a lot, it's. Under, the music in this one is kind of understated in comparison to Suspiria and Inferno, and I think that's why it's not as recognizable, uh, or at least as memorable, I should say. Because yeah. for me, you should be able, if you should be able to walk out of a movie and be able to hum the main themes, whether it's Halloween or yeah. The Exorcist or whatever, they just those are themes that just are burned into your imagination for all time. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a more modern sound. I personally, I like Simonetti's stuff with Argento, uh, you know, that's even not the Goblin stuff. And say what you will about Dracula 3D or whatever it's build. Um, Claudio Simonetti's music for it is gorgeous. Uh, I think his stuff for the card player is really cool. I mean, it's very modern electronica stuff. Uh, he does a good job of kind of reinventing himself for each movie. And accordingly, I think. I think one thing, no matter what you can say about... Argento's movies past 2000 or whatever. 
maybe the music isn't as memorable, but I think the music is great gotcha. in all of it. And the, there is the argument of like, if you notice the music in a movie, then maybe it's not doing its job. <laughs> you know, there's that, that argument. There I don't necessarily argument, but for me, I don't necessarily agree with. I guess it, the question I, is: Are you distracted by it, or are you noticing it and loving it? Like when I watch Amadeus, I am noticing the music, <laughs> and I'm noticing it in a very, very good way. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, the house used in uh, this movie as the house, as the mother's tears house, was. Uh, also used in Baba's Kill Baby Kill in 1966. Damn good movie. Interested little uh, factoid. The line, uh, I think it's they capture Asya at the end and the Mother of Tears is like, who's going to eat the girl? Now that's a kind of a little nod to this recurring dream or nightmare that Dario had when he was a boy that there was like a headmistress of his school or something and he was deathly afraid that she was going to eat him. <laughs> He was scared of her. And uh, it's just, I, I only bring it up because it's an interesting, I think any glimpse into like how his, his, his mind yeah. works is an interesting one. He's a, he's a fascinating guy. Um, I kind of hinted uh, in the, before we wrap up, I kind of hinted in the Animal Trilogy episode of this two-parter that I had an Asiarzento story. Bring it on. And I may have told it in when we did Deep Red. I don't know. But since we're talking about Asiarzento, uh, being in Mother of Tears, I think, like many young men, uh, when they discover Arsio Argento, there is a, a fixation. <laughs> uh, and uh, as I discovered Dario Argento's movies in the late 90s and then uh, eventually fell in love with Arsio Argento, this was uh, a time of the internet was becoming rising to power. And we talked about that earlier in terms of uh, a lot of things became available that weren't available before. Now, somewhere, somehow, I found, maybe she had a website at the time, I found an email address for Asi Argento, and I emailed her. And uh, and I remember even in the, maybe, not, maybe in my reply, but I emailed her, and um, she responded. And I said, oh, well, thank you for responding. And I don't even remember what the, those initial emails were. But I kind of insinuated, like, if this is you, thank you. And, and if this is not Asya, like, please send my regards. <laughs> you know, like, if you work for Asya. Like, yeah. So she responded. She's like, well, why don't you think it's me? And so I went through this period of time where I was, like, email pen pals with Asya. Oh, very and cool. Shanta. Excellent. And it, it kind of stopped with she had just finished uh, directing uh, her first movie, Scarlet Diva. And she was telling me all about it because it wasn't really talked about in here in America yet. And she was talking about how it was done. And she had been to some European festivals. And now she was going to take, like, a long-needed break. And she was going to go to Morocco for, like months or something like that. That's chill. And so that was the, that that's how it ended. I had never heard from her again after she left for Morocco. But we had this weird period of time where we exchanged emails, you know, not daily, but on occasion. Um and it was a it was something I always really appreciated and and made me like her even more. Well, dude, you should hunt her down on Twitter because she's extremely active on Twitter and cool as fuck and uh, there have been period, periods where certain tweets of mine have gotten dramatically more traffic yeah. because she'll give it a retweet, even though it has nothing. I mean, I remember I posted once, like, uh, Boonwell in the 1960s was really on fire, and I posted four posters from his films in the 60s, and it went from having, like, 10 retweets to, like, 300 because Ozzy Argento somehow saw it and retweeted yeah. it. So, yeah, she's um, she's active on social media and cool as hell. Now, the kicker or the punchline of the story, which 
is for me a very sad punchline, but I, I are finished to the story, but I understand it is I read an interview with her in like femme fatale magazine or cinema fantastique, which was still around back then. And there was some interview with her, some big retrospective with her work with her dad and stuff. And she was telling this story about how, when she made Scarlet Diva and she, uh, and afterwards she had become a recluse and all she did was kind of like sit in her house or her apartment and just surf the internet. And she remembers it as being a very dark time. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, Hey, like, wait, we had a moment during the time that was beautiful and full of light and love. But no, to her, it was a very dark time. I'm part of a, I'm part of a very dark period for us. Well, who knows? Maybe you were a ray of light that kept her going during this dark time. You never but, know. But uh, so that's my uh, very strange and weird little. I love it. No, I mean, she, she's so damn cool, and I, I'm a, yeah, I'm a colossal fan of hers. Even if like her movies sometimes are uneven, I just as a persona and a public figure, massive fan. I'm I'm in her camp all the way. But uh, so the Mother of Tears trilogy is over. There's been. Uh, Hints, I guess, more about when this movie came out, when people were like, well, you're going to do another one. He's like, well, there's three mothers, three movies. He's like, maybe I could do like a prequel or something. Yeah, if somebody dumps a million dollars in his lap. Because, I mean, I think his movies aren't super low budget. I mean, super high budget. I mean, if he had a million bucks, he can make a flick. Yeah. I would love it if he would make one last movie before he would. I mean, I think he's 76 years old now. But if he made one last movie that, you know, rewarded his fans' loyalty and longtime patience. But, sure. you know, but even if he doesn't. He still has a body of work that stands alone in the world of horror, and like we said earlier, from Profondo Rosso through Opera, it's as strong a six-movie streak as you can think of. It's just an incredible run. Yeah, all these guys are getting up there, and uh, who knows if they'll keep going with movies. Well, Lucio Volgi died like 25 years ago, so yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys. Mario Bava died like in the late 70s, so he's kind of the last of that great, he's the last connection to this great juicy period of Italian cinema and yeah, for people for me I've, I've said it before in previous episodes of Wrong Real any time or era in which we live where there's not a few great Italian filmmakers at work I feel like cinema is diminished as a result because for me from time of Rossellini through the time of the, the great Italian horror filmmakers Italian cinema is some of the most dynamic and exciting cinema being made in the world and just cinema needs great Italian filmmakers doing great work I agree. I mean, it's definitely every, you know, obviously every filmmaker has their own point of view, but there is a certain Italian perspective. It's just style and yeah, it's maybe it's more style than substance. Who knows? But f- I mean, how you can come up with at least 10 brilliant directors from Fellini to Rosalini to Antonioni to the Gorbucci's and Le- Leone's and the Argento's. I mean, just between Westerns and horror and art film, it's like there's just a murderer's row of brilliant filmmakers and Dario Argento's in the mix is one of those guys. And, uh, He's a big, still a big star. I don't remember if we talked about that here or in, in the first part, but uh, he's a <laughs> loose, loose track of what what we've mentioned. Did I say that yet? I don't know. What did I say? Yeah, I, I can't remember either. But he definitely is a public figure. Well, he's a guy. Well, you know, as we we're going to wrap it up right now, but uh, I will say this. I mean, he is a guy. We talked about it with the uh, uh, the the animal trilogy i mean he's a guy that kind of rejuvenated in a whole subgenre of film and then he did it again with deep red i mean to do it once yeah is kind of astonishing but then to manage to do it twice with the same genre is crazy yeah and then to take to silence all the pretenders and then to go and do suspiria next 
you know, to say like, okay, I've done it twice now. Like what's next. And then to come out with Suspiria, it's crazy. Yeah. And then to stay on like kind of that path and then kind of revisit it with Tenebrae, which in my book is like, you know, still right up there. I mean, I, I love a lot. I love Tenebrae. It's great. Uh, And then to have like the crazy mayhem of phenomenon or creepers and opera. Opera's (laughs) fucking insane. I love opera. (laughs) I know, but to have like this crazy, like, uh, you know, story about this little girl who can control uh, insects, but that's not even like what the movie's about. Yeah, that's like again, a it's, s- it's side like, detail. It's but that, but then we get into like you got the, the crazy monkey in there. You got the crazy monkey that takes revenge for the death of Donald Pleasant. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, his, I love it. His body of work is insane, and uh, it's only one of the many reasons why like I love his movies so much. And I was so excited for us to talk about him. I think you can kind of hear it in. We talk. We start talking about him a little bit in the Romero podcast that we did like last October. Because well, we they're ta- just such good friends. Because we talk about Two Evil Eyes yeah. and, and their collaboration, and, and I think my passion for him kind of leaked out there a little bit. And I think even when that was done, you were like, "Okay, let's do our until at some point." Well, for me, my interest in him is still so fresh and so new. Like I don't have. I mean, there's. I guess there are pluses and minuses to a lot of nostalgia because if you have an intense nostalgia for a filmmaker, sometimes it can maybe warp your memories and or view of the work order for me it's, it's all still very fresh and new for me so i'm but i, I kind of like the fact that i saved such a great filmmaker for later in life because if you're too much of a rabid film goer you can kind of run out of masters all too quickly if you just like i'm gonna watch all their films between like age 20 and 30 and then you're yeah. just like oh well shit now i've got, uh, only got new releases to look forward to yeah. so i'm i, I kind of like the fact that I saved Bava. I saved most of Fulci. I saved all, almost all of Argento and like a lot of these guys until much later in life because then I got to have some new film-going experiences that really just totally knocked my socks off. But then at the same time, you know, the beautiful thing about doing a podcast about movies or, or guests, you know, hosting on, on, a, on a podcast like yours about movies is I get to revisit yeah. a lot of these movies that I fell in love with 20 years ago. And there is, you know, sometimes there's a big difference in how you view a movie from oh, yeah. when you're like in well, your you late change. teens, early 20s. But also if you know you're preparing 30s. to talk about something, you prepare with such intensity that you watch with more intensity. Like if I throw in just like a movie that I love when I was 18, just casually for fun to have as like background noise, I'm not going to be like, like totally locked in and focus on it. <laughs> yeah, but if yeah. I'm watching a movie for a podcast, I'm like, all right, I'm sitting up and I'm paying yeah. attention and drinking my espresso and I'm taking notes and I'm getting like all in. And it, it definitely allows you to appreciate it with fresh eyes sure. because you're just looking at it with such rabid focus. Yeah, I mean, that's with Suspiria that happened this time. Like I said, it was, I almost didn't watch it just out of sheer time. Not having yeah, you're time. just like... And if I was going to skip one, it would be the one yeah, that I've like, seen. I can talk about that one, yeah. Like, I know that movie almost, like cover to cover watch it in your head without a projector (laughs) i've seen it i've seen it project i've been to theaters i've seen it projected i've watched it a million times but it was great to see it again because like i said like i i i feel like i was kind of taking it for granted i had seen it so many times and you just like oh suspiria exists you know like i you know i don't need to think about it but then to sit down and really watch it like you said uh when you're preparing for something like this and you really sit back and you watch it and like i said especially for the saturday night movie sleepovers i always try to try to watch it with fresh eyes and sit back and 
kind of experience it again for the first time and it was like <laughs> and it was like holy crap this movie is great yeah <laughs> well i think we did it justice earlier and uh, hopefully people have not seen it and they got this far into a dario gento podcast hey <laughs> why are you listening to this three-hour conversation of argento if you haven't seen suspiria uh, go watch suspiria and come back and hang out with us but uh so we uh covered on wrong reel we covered the animal trilogy for dario argento and here on saturday night movie sleepovers presents the sidecast we covered the three mother trilogy by uh dario argento so if you've heard listen to this one and you haven't listened to the other one yet definitely go check it out um so james tell us where they can check it out you can find wrong reel on itunes and stitcher radio and google play music or just on our website which is web suit our <laughs> website wrongreel.com or you can find me on twitter at colbrax or wrong reel at wrong reel and we're on facebook we just have a facebook page wrong reel but check it out and um yeah jay blake fischera he is on a george Romero episode he's on a score to death episode he's on a buster keaton episode and he's also obviously on the animal trilogy episode so lots of fishera goodness to enjoy over in the home of wrong real that and everything else is totally worthwhile too i will give you this we started our podcast around the same time and you have eclipsed us many times over when it comes to sheer amount of of material but i think y'all crush us in terms of total traffic <laughs> per individual episode so you've eclipsed us in that respect so there's much envy i guess on, on both sides uh, but it's i i enjoy uh, I don't always have time to listen to a podcast, but when I do, <laughs> I listen to Wrong Real. Fantastic. <laughs> I, 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 I'm flattered and I appreciate it greatly. Uh, and you can follow us, obviously, on uh, iTunes and uh, at just about anywhere you can get podcasts. Uh, we have our website, which originally was saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com, but we also now own Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers.com. You can follow us on Twitter at sat sleepovers and join us on facebook for a lot of fun the book scored to death we actually talk about some of the movies we talked about today and that's in that book uh, a lot of talk about goblin and stuff scored to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers it's available on amazon in both paperback and kindle and just about anywhere you get books and it is nominated for a rondo award for book of the year so uh i need your votes so that i can own a little rondo hatton bust because nobody talks about rondo hatton on a podcast more than me and dion except for maybe gilbert gottfried uh so please go to uh the rondo award.com or google it because i'm not sure that that's the address and make sure that you vote for score to death this was another exciting adventure in sleepover movies uh we'll be back next week with a movie with me and Dion talking about it and hopefully James and I will do something again in the not too distant future word thank you very much and goodbye later <laughs>